Justin. I'm Emily. I'm Kale. I'm Marco. I'm Jamie. I'm Christine. I'm Jake. And, and this, this is Comicverse. Thank you for listening to another Comics First podcast. As always, I'm your host, Comics First CEO, Justin Alba. And as always, I'm joined by an amazing panel of Comics First contributors and comic book fans. Today, we're talking about Kieran Gillen's... Is that how you pronounce his name, Kieran Gillen? Because that's how I assume you pronounce his name? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. But I've never actually spoken to him, so I wouldn't know. But today, we're talking about Kieran Gillen's image book called Wicked and the Divine, or Wicked Plus the Divine, technically. Also, sorry, Justin, oh, if no, I can. Oh, no, please. You can. Don't forget to credit the artist. I would love to credit the artist, but there's three of them, so I was going to wait till the art segment. Jamie McKelvey is the main artist. Okay, that's good. Yes. And an amazing artist, if I do say so myself. So before I introduce the panel, just a reminder that you can find us on comicsfirst.com. We've got a slew of podcasts on all kinds of comics, as well as original articles, reviews, interviews, and videos. We also just started branching out into covering topics that you, our audience, are wanting to hear more about and putting our little Comics First analytical twist on it. So the executive editor of the new culture section that will be dealing with politics, movies, music, gaming, and the net is Christine Don. Welcome, Christine. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Christine, would you like to give a little plug or ex- slash addendum to, the ex- to my explanation of the culture section? Sure. So the culture section was sort of the brainchild of Justin and I, and it's basically covering anything that has to do with pop culture that we think people, comic book fans, fans of fans in general want to read about and know about. It's sort of a little different than most pop culture websites in that we do more analytical, in-depth reviews and analysis on sort of broad trends in pop culture. So I'm really excited uh, because it just got started and we have an amazing group of writers and editors for that section now who are doing some fantastic work. So I'm super proud. Awesome. Christina, what's one of the favorite articles you've seen coming out of the culture section so far? Uh, So far, it would probably be we have a new intern. His name is Brian Long, and he did a fantastic article about subverting sort of common thriller tropes um, and looking at the history of thriller in as like a cinematic genre and how new like and looking at these two films, um, Blue Ruin and The Green Room, how they're sort of subverting those tropes and adding some new refreshing sort of elements to this genre. So that was a really good article and it's live now. So everybody should check it out. Awesome. Please do. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Uh, another Comics First editor joining us is Jake Grubman, who covers all things indie comic for Comics First. And he's even in a video about the best 2016 indie comics, which some people argue are not indie comics. And he's here drinking some Sapporo with us. True. And both um, true. yeah, both all things are true, Jake. I only speak the truth. I'm like Inanna, except I speak truth. I don't remember oh, which one she is. Okay. Look. It works. It's um, a, a non K. No, that's a different one. The other one. one. The Prince one. Kale, whenever oh, you try to correct any, anything ethnic, you always sound retarded. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. You always. I would, have, okay, I have on. to edit that out. I uh, was, <laughs> no, that, that one we're keeping in. That one we're keeping Because that was, was just a fact. When was, Jamie is laughing appropriately, even, we're keeping it in. That wasn't even anything ethnic. That yeah, was, that, a, that was okay. a comic book fact. Is your mom's name a non K? I don't think so. Okay, now I lost my spot. I don't even know where I am. Jake Grubman. I think you were going to ask me a question. I wasn't going to ask you a question, actually. I was and continue to tell people to go look on our website and our YouTube for your best 2016 indie comics, which have they all come out yet? They have. They have all come out. Yes. So it's really the best first half of 2016. Yeah, I think the title of that uh, clip was best of of early 2016 because I didn't have a better idea for a video and also I didn't want to look at the whole publication schedule for the year, but they are all out. I have four of them and they're excellent. Awesome. To get the fifth. Cool. That's comics first. Doing as little as possible and bringing you to it as slow as we can. (laughs) 
Oh, yeah. So how is it coming from indie comics to reading Wicked and the Divine? The question. question. You were right. I had one. Perfect. It's good. I mean, this comic, I had tons of fun reading this comic. Um, I'm glad someone did. Just kidding. I mean, some people look at Image and actually consider these independent comics as a whole, which is what you referred to before. Other people view this as more uh, within the mainstream, and obviously it bridges some gaps there. But uh, I would say this is more of a mainstream-like comic. You know, it's very crisp and clean. First of all, as an object, these trade paperbacks are just beautiful. They are very nice. The artwork is awesome. It's wonderfully colored. I guess we'll get to that stuff, but uh, in short, I, I enjoyed this one. If you could sleep with one of the three trade paperbacks of The Wicked and Divine, which one would you <laughs> choose? The, the white one, the gray one, or the gray-er one? I'll go with the first one. The white one? I knew you'd say that. Um, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> All right, speaking of white, that leads us to Emily, one of the whitest people I've ever met from one of the lightest places I've ever met, Minnesota. No, you're welcome. It's a compliment. I'm just kidding. I don't know why I'm so on this kick. I'm like 80% white. But Minnesotan people are... White. (laughs) I was going to take it further to uh, Scandinavian, but yeah, white. Yeah, pretty close. Mm -hmm. I'm German. Uh, Yeah, that's... uh, White. Yeah, Germans. We we you can go back to episode forty five and hear about what I think about Germans. Um oh, which is no, it's really important. But Emily, you're an assistant editor and you're interviewing people in Wizard World Philly and you're this is your third or fourth podcast, right? Something like that. How uh there's several. Nice. And you've been working on this project where you are having people write essential reading lists for I am. Yeah, well tell us about that a little for bit. For superheroes. Well, that's exciting. It is, actually. So it's a, so what is it exactly? So I got into the comic book game late. I don't know anything about superheroes. I didn't grow up reading them. But I've seen all the movies, of course, because who hasn't? So I kind of was wondering, for people who haven't read the comic books, obviously the movies aren't exactly alike. So what if I wanted to start with someone like Superman? Do I start with issue number one? Because that seems crazy. Because there's an abundance of Superman. There's abundance of Superman number ones. And ironically, Superman, did he appear in Action Comics number one? Do we know that for a fact? Yes. I think he, he was, yeah. Yeah, okay. I kind of ruined that joke because I was going to talk about he didn't even appear in a number one. <laughs> Sorry, Emily, continue. <laughs> so I came to Justin with this and I said, why, why don't we do an essential reading list that if people are wondering if I want to read these comics on these superheroes, where do I start? Why don't we tell them? So I've been reaching out to everyone, all the collaborators of Comics First, anyone who is kind of a an expert in individual superheroes. Everyone writes their own article based on that. And it's actually been a lot of fun. It has been fun. Emily, you yourself Batmaned me and Marius when we were recording our X-Men podcast. It was pretty awesome. You just fucking showed the up and we're just here i was just here i loved it it was great. um it was an awesome moment and it was a three-hour podcast on <laughs> marius and i walking you through x-men one through the latest issue and i can't imagine why you wouldn't want to hear that but <laughs> i know i do but uh yeah so uh, you're mostly an image person how does wicked in the divine stack up for you against the the more indie comics that you read since you meet with jake who's the indie editor i do it was pretty good actually cool I'm happy with it, at least. <laughs> I don't think it's like totally top par, but mm. it's just right underneath that. It's par. It's par. Par. <laughs> I'm fine with that. I like I like things that are par. Marco Cunalata is also here. I hope that was Spanish enough for you. 
Uh, he basically did, you did everything. You helped set up the podcast, although you set up my microphones out of order. But that's okay. Um, <laughs> moved out of order. No, that's yeah, that's cool. Anyway, how are you? How many podcasts are you in now? Uh, this is my second. I was in the. I was speaking in the Batman one, the Snyder, his and his whole run. Uh, but I usually help out setting up the video and the audio. So I'm in. I'm not really in, but you guys make reference to me every once in a while. It's like, hey, look, Marco's there or something. Oh, he was like in some X-Men podcast. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Look at Marco. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah you, uh, so I'll, I usually help out on the podcast. I'll do the video stuff. That's um, too much information. I just asked how the <laughs> f- you were, Marco, but thank you. All right. I'll, I'll, I guess this was my last podcast. Bye, guys. <laughs> it's nice knowing you. Bye, Marco. No, just kidding. You do help out a lot, and you do all the technical shit, and you do all the... Uh, like data shit that we do oh yeah actually not all of it probably more like five percent of it but we can give you that credit yay today this podcast is actually about what's true and what isn't and i think the beginning of this introduction is also about that how will you know i don't know but next up is kale ward kale you write you make comics you publish them you're a driver of cars uh which is a rare thing in the city of nueva york remind the audience if you don't mind about your comics company and what you guys have coming up my comics company is uh, where Panels Publishing, and I believe the newest thing we have coming up is uh, Cosmic Number Three. Will probably, I want to say November, will be the the newest thing uh, for that. So probably uh, look out for that. We're working on getting on uh, Comicsology. Awesome. Um, and we just got onto a small like indie marketplace called Indie Shade. Mm. Uh, I believe it's uh, IndieShade.com, but I could be wrong. I want to make a joke about throwing shade, but I don't think I can do that. I'm not quick enough, but I feel like I should. Don't. Say something like, make sure you don't throw any shade at Comixology. Boom. And then do like a hand gesture. I think you just did it for us. (laughs) I don't think I can do it better than that. That accomplished that for me. You tried. Yeah, no, that was pretty amazing. Um, And Cal, I think Brian wrote an article about your Cosmic One. Yes, and I believe it was Chris Gal- Galvin who did Cosmic Number Two. Oh, awesome! There you go. So you can check those out on comicsfirst.com as Please well. Please do and go buy them. We're poor and hungry. Buy them because the rest of us are rich and not hungry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although Sushi. I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm actually neither of those things either. Okay, so last but not least, of course, never least is Miss Jamie Rice. Who, if if you were a character in Working in Divine, Jamie, you'd be. Gaia and Chaos put together, but no one knew that reference because none of you studied ancient Greek mythology, did you? Oh well, I know uh, the name Gaia, but I don't know. I just remember hearing that she was great, but I didn't know why. She was. She's just the Earth itself. Mm, yeah. Yes, we commune with Gaia. Yes. And then Chaos is what there was before. It was just Chaos, and then Gaia, and you were both. You're both the Alpha and the Omega. I was say I think I'm feeling a religious reference coming along. I, and you know what? This podcast is rife with religious references because again it is the wicked and divine but and that's an important thing to mention and we should also mention that jamie is the managing editor of the comic section and a podcast host herself jamie what did you do you did i think bitch planet was your first one you also did mm-hmm. do you mean of image or just first podcast in general what, what were some of the ones you hosted i think well the first podcast i hosted was bitch planet and then the first podcast i think i was on was the grant X-Men morrison's one. new x-men those were the good old days those were the good old days. Uh, so how does it feel to not be talking Marvel or X-Men together on a podcast for one? It's kind of like nice, but I feel like there's a certain point where like I don't know what to expect with our conversation. No, I know. Me <laughs> because when we have the X-Men podcast, I'm always like, oh, like someone's going to hate this character. And like, I know Justin and I will agree on this. And like, I know Marius will say this thing. So I think it's fun because I get to like 
talk about new people that I don't remember their names. No, it's true. I, I just think the weird thing about <laughs> Wicked and the Divine is why wasn't Jean Grey in it? We'll we'll bring up Jean. I'm sure that she's relevant. That one woman, whenever she's upset, Morgan, her hair turns red like Jean, like Dark Phoenix. Yeah, See, I did it. You did? Okay, but it wasn't Jean. What were we going to say, Jake? That. <laughs> you wish you were going to say Got that. It. We, uh, we will be able to talk about how much Justin hates it. So hates no, I don't. I don't hate. I don't. I don't. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. I'm. I'm just a conscientious observer. Objector. Which has nothing to do with hating it. I'm not even an objector. Uh, okay. So before we get to talking about Wicked and Divine, I think it's important to point out that there are major, 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 major reveals in this comic. I feel like there's a ton of oh shit moments. So there will mm-hmm. be spoilers in this podcast. So definitely beware. And that being said, Jake, you're going to give us a quick summary, right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> oh, you wanted me to now. Feel okay. free to um, let it rip. The Wicked and the... <laughs> Excuse me. This comic started in 2014, published by Image Comics, and it follows uh, our protagonist and mostly narrator, Laura Wilson, as we learn about something called the recurrence, which is an event in which a set of people take on the characters of a bunch of different gods from various traditions, but they're controversial. Not everyone believes in them, but at the same time, they develop into these sort of mega pop stars, and they have their own cults of personality. So... Our protagonist, Laura, she's one of these super fans, and over the course of the first few issues, she grows close to Lucifer and also the other members of the Pantheon, and things quickly turn into a sort of murder mystery. So over the, over the course of the first few arcs, we learn a lot about the gods as pop stars and their relationship to both the public and their handler. Oh, and that gift I mentioned, the thing about we're all gods, that whole thing, well, there's a catch, and that's that they only live for two years. So hilarity, hilarity ensues, heads explode, <laughs> uh, other stuff happens, gods fight each other. All of that stuff happens except the hilarity part. Yes. Yeah. Wow, this is such a, like, a, this podcast is mythological in itself. Like, are we telling the truth? Are we not? Are we in Wicked and Divine? Jake, I believe in you, and I believe in Jamie. Like, if you were both two Wicked and Divine people, I would believe it. If you were like, um, Jake, you could be, like, Buddha, and Jamie, again, you could be Gaia. Buddha. Mm-hmm. Jake, don't say anything. <laughs> it could happen. I'm going to have to change my outfit. I'm gonna, if, if, it's, if it's of any consolation. I need to go stage left and put on like 12 more layers of makeup and do my hair. If it's of any consolation, I'm dressed as Buddha underneath these clothes. Um, <laughs> all right. So as Jake mentioned about the summary, well, you didn't actually mention this, but uh, so Wicked and Define starts with a uh, murder mystery. So obviously the murder mystery trope is rife in all narrative forms of fiction. Uh, we see it in everything from soap operas to literature. So what was your initial reaction to discovering the comic would have a murder mystery as a device that moves the plot forward? Anyone? Anyone? Jamie and then Cal. I I love murder mysteries. So for me, I thought it was good. I think it's also good because I enjoyed kind of the general concept, but I thought it was good because it was going to give the plot speed and like something to drive it forward. And I will say it did have a nice, I liked it because it kind of culminated too into that scene later on where they're talking about Lucifer and they go through all the suspects. And so she kind of like says things about each of them. And then at one point she's talking about the one that's like the beautiful butterfly makeup and is like the sun child. And she's like, she's perfect and has always liked me and would never do anything bad. So according to tropes, she should have done it. So I thought it was nice that it kind of like was aware of itself. And I appreciate And I think I appreciated mostly like what I was saying, like the way it moved the plot. Cal, how about you? Uh, for me, I, it's standard. Like if, if something doesn't have a murder in it, I wonder what's wrong with it. Just like in general, mm-hmm. not you know, 
anything I consume has to have a murder. That probably says more about me than anything. But I say, Kale, do you relate to it because you murdered someone once? <laughs> Ooh, I can't say that on a recording. <laughs> Don't admit anything on air. I will say that if anyone, if I, if I had to like take a vote of anyone here who did kill someone, I would definitely vote for you, Kale. Absolutely. I yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, it just means that you go through with your shit. Anybody else have anything to say? Yeah, I kind of thought that that part of the story was sort of in the background. For me, this was mostly about the characters, and the, honestly, the artwork for me was the most powerful. But the murder mystery part definitely drives the plot, like Jamie was saying. But it, it also sor- serves as a device for highlighting each of the characters, which is, I think, what most of the book is about. All right. So you guys, did your feelings... Okay. No one else raised their hand. <laughs> um, all right. Since... You guys kind of answered this question already without really answering it. I will say that my feelings about the murder mystery changed as a plot device uh, as the story further unfolded because at first I was like, meh, murder mystery, kind of Melrose Place. Like, I get it. And it's like, I had a feeling it would be the person who you least expect, Jamie, don't fall. That would have been a really horrible moment, but we would have got a lot of ratings. But I'm glad you didn't get hurt. you want me to take it again? No, 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 no. I'll choose someone else to fall instead next time. Someone less valuable. Um, <laughs> all right, so... But yeah, my feelings on it definitely changed. I, I, of course, Jamie, I totally agree with you in that it furthered the story. But towards the middle and end of the the volumes that we read, I thought it really helped explore things that I didn't think the book was going to explore in the beginning. And throughout that, I think that there were some pretty major plot twists plot twists so first we find out cassandra is a god as well next we find out laura is persephone it's also revealed that ananki is the murderer and someone who is uh framing baphomet so were all these plot twists and reveals did you think they were well executed or uh did you guys see them coming were others more shocking than other ones christine yeah i thought the cassandra reveal as like her being a god was really well done and like completely out of left field and i enjoyed that element of the story but then i kind of was disappointed that laura turned it turned out to be a god because it just felt so much like wish fulfillment you know like as a reader you like i assume most readers would be like oh i want to be a god like this seems so cool like and like that that she was a fan and then she actually ends up being a god it just seems like all too convenient you know yeah, by the end of the second volume, I was definitely like, oh, they're just handing out God powers now. Like, everybody's going to get one. Marco's going to get one. Marco has <laughs> yeah. one. Now. Even Marco. He has one. <laughs> to be fair, her head exploded, like, immediately. <laughs> yeah. Literally. I would say the Laura, the Laura reveal for me, like, actually, like, it worked only because that it was, like, I... After, like, the issue where she, like, thought she had it and then she didn't, I was, like, it was, like, always, like, constantly, like, almost, like, oh, maybe she'll get it now. And then I was, like, she's never going to get it. So I feel like I kind of was faked out enough times that I, like, believed that she was definitely never going to get it. Like, I was, like, oh, it's that kind of – because for me, it sold itself as this is the kind of story where, like, it's, like, the – opposite of the Buffy story where it's like maybe the people who are special are the ones who aren't special so I like was like oh I get I see what kind of story you're telling and so then I like accepted that so for me it was like there but it was like a triple fake out like it was like she's definitely a god she's not a god she's accepted her powers oh it's this kind of story oh no she is oh she's dead that was my that's what you that was how I felt when I read podcast over we can all go home <laughs> do you want me to give more reactions I had when Pizza I was and drinks. Yeah, please do. I think we should have a podcast of just Jamie's reactions. Uh, Christine, were you going to add something onto what she was saying? Oh, I was just saying, yeah, it was like the opposite for me. Like, as soon as she, like, lit the cigarette on fire in, like, the end of the first volume, I was like, oh, she's going to be a god. Like, I just knew it. It was like, even all the fake outs, like, didn't convince me at all. It didn't which is matter. Why, like, yeah. yeah, like, which is why by the end of the third, I don't know, actually, no, like, the middle of the third volume, I guess, or by issue 17, 
or something. She becomes like, you know, Persephone and stuff. That was just so, I was just like, it was like too much wish fulfillment. It was just like too cliche for me. And so I was like not really super into that. But I did appreciate how she like died. But then I don't think she's like actually dead. But I don't know if that's Yeah, true. there's no way. So there's Marker? no way she's dead, right? She's no, because she was at the end. She's performing, right? What was yeah. the name of that? Uh, the the issue, Emily, <laughs> for everyone. Oh, the last. It was the, the last, last page. It was the greatest one. The, the greatest one. Fans. It was called like the. There was like the inevitable cliffhanger. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The inevitable. Yeah, the inevitable cliffhanger. Right. Yeah. Oh, perfect. That, that issue. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But she was like performing at the end, so she's not even dead. So it just it's like total wish wish fulfillment as a fan. I mean, this this uh, trade is actually called commercial suicide. Ooh. I love Third that trade. title. I love that self awareness. Yeah, I was with Christine on the whole on the question of whether she was going to get powers at some point. But when she died immediately, to me that was up there with like Ned Stark getting well. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey, whoa! Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I actually agree, and I'm gonna, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. To me, it was kind of reminiscent of, I forgot her name, Janet Lee's character in Psycho? Mm, yeah, yeah. Hitchcock, anyone? Because yep. well, she died how, like a quarter of the way through the story, it felt like. I think, yeah, I think it was like uh, versus like Ned Stark, you know, in season one, I thought I, I felt that Laura had died somewhat similar to uh, the length of time that we saw mm-hmm. Janet Lee's yeah. character in Psycho. Yeah. So I'm just, I just wanted yeah. to you, Grubman. That's what happened. So you I, make Hitchcock references, I make like, Contemporary popular television references. I don't even remember what you have your reference to have someone about. that can relate to the kids. Right, me <laughs> of all people. <laughs> if there's someone, it's definitely Jake Grubman. Um, so sorry, Justin. Mm-hmm. Should we talk about Lucifer's death, or like that was the first big cliffhanger for me when I first started reading the the series was Lucifer's death because I thought like when I first I read it by trade, so when I got it, that was the bigger deal to me than anything else. In the first issue, you mean? No, no, the, the, the volume. The end of the first, first, like, issue first five. Volume. Yeah. Oh, Lucy dies at the end of issue five. I thought it was like the first issue. No, no, no. The the no. judge is killed, and that's. Oh all the, the, yeah. my god! Okay, I'm confusing yeah, things yeah. already. I'm not really. I didn't major in math, so I'm really bad at numbers. <laughs> okay, yeah, that was a big. Uh, it sounds. It also sounds like you didn't major in reading this comic. <laughs> I yeah. Unfortunately, I didn't. But <laughs> I, I wish I could. Sick. Lucifer's death was kind of beautiful. I, yeah, I, really and, cool. and I thought so, too. And it was that, like, for me, like, the series up to that point wasn't anything really worth hanging on to uh, until that. exact that yeah. exact moment. And I was I horrified. Well, that moment killed me. Because what's her name? Anaku? Lucy. Ananke. 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 Ananke, yeah. It should be known so that Lucy. we're all, you know, not modern, Hindu. modern people and not Hindu. <laughs> and we're all, we're all doing our best. Yeah. For some reason, I always pronounced her name in my head as Anarchy. I don't know why. Like Anakin, Anakin. from Star Wars. I don't know why. <laughs> All right. I could see it. Great comparison. They're so similar. But Lucy has that yeah. giant fight. You think they're going to be yeah. the girl? in yeah, the yeah, middle yeah. of the street. They turn out to be the and bad. And then she walks out of with, the yeah, house with, with, with Ball and, 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 yeah. and, and even with the Morgan, right? Even, right if, the Morgan. even if she had died there. That I think that would have been less surprising. I think it's the yes. way she dies that yeah. because is she yeah. walks so out of the shocking. house yeah. with Laura and Cassandra. Yeah, and then Anunki is standing. She's right off to the she's side. Right, she's right, there. She right there, and she says, "I love you, Lucifer." And Lucifer turns to her and says, "Don't." And then she, she lied. Snapped. I her love fingers. that. The snap. She did. Oh, I love that. It's so cool. Just the single panel of snap her fingers. Yeah. 
and then her head explodes. And the, yeah, the head exploding, <laughs> uh, the head super exploding pretty. like effect is awesome. All, all super pretty. pretty. I think all of them are. They're yeah. all just colorful. I say I will point I out like a them. comic book theory reference if I if I can that it was the first time I've seen in a Western comic a moment to moment panels. Some of this panel work and these colors and everything are, are some of McKelvey's best work. I think it's uh, like they. Uh, I agree, uh, but hold on to that to the art section. We're going to talk about that in depth. You were saying the, mo- sure. the moment to moment. Yes, I was just saying that the 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 pacing of panels is moment to moment versus if we talk about Scott McCloud's making comics. I think he talks about it in the beginning about the different types of understanding or as well. timing between panels yeah and i think he talks about moment to moment panels being more typical in manga because they have more pages available to them or even european comics which have better deadlines unlike us that uh, shelve shit out too often uh, but i thought it was cool seeing that in a western comic and I, and I personally hadn't seen that before christine oh yeah i didn't know that that was the first is that the first time we've seen a moment to moment panel in western comics oh I no no no, no, no. I the first no time idea. i have personally Oh, personally. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, because I've like, I, that like seemed very like normal to me, but I guess it's because I read a lot of manga. Yeah. No, well, that's where it's like mostly used. Like, uh, I think the examples uh, Scott McCloud uses is like the the wave of someone's cape. You can see it. In, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, or somebody mm-hmm. lifting his hat, I think is yeah. the right. other one. Yeah. All right, cool. So, yeah. So, what we're, since we're kind of tripped up on this whole reveal thing and plot twist, let's go through. Emily, what was the biggest plot twist for you? Biggest plot twist. I don't know. Biggest plot twist? I got nothing. Go, Marco. Marco? Oh, the, for me, it was the where Laura gets transformed and killed just because the same way that uh, Jamie was saying, it was they were throwing things at you and throwing you off the track. It's like, oh, she's not, she is, she's not, she is. So that was the biggest thing. And for me, it was just I, I couldn't see how it was going to continue because she was the narrator up until that point. She, you, she was the one that you were following. She was the person that just was driving the story with trying to find out, okay, who killed Lucifer? What's the whole story behind it? So... For me, that was really big because I just didn't know where the where the story was gonna go from there, and that's what I love about like comics like that. It just there's one moment that just changes up the whole game for the book, and for me, that was that, and that was that's why it was my favorite. Cool, uh, Christine. I think you were next. I think probably this is gonna sound really lame, I guess, but the biggest plot reveal for, or plot twist for me was actually when at the end of like the first volume, right before Lucifer dies, is when she reveals or. She says to Cassandra that, like, oh, I'm sorry I called you, like, Cassandra. Like, I know you're transgendered. I had no idea at that point that Cassandra was transgendered oh, was until big... that moment. And then I was like, oh, crap. Yeah, it's really um, kind of a vague character thing. Like, yeah. they never really address yeah. it except in, uh, in, mm-hmm. in text. I kind of like that they that they uh, don't address it too much. But, you know. Right. I thought, like, the way they handled it was really well done because, like, they didn't – there was nothing about the art or the writing that sort of made it – like overtly obvious that she was transgendered and so like that's sort of subtle like i know i like like they say a lot of shit to each other this entire comic but then the fact that lucifer was like that was actually uncalled for me like questioning your your like gender identity that was like kind of a nice moment for me mm-hmm. and very well done like very tasteful mm-hmm. uh jamie or jake how about you guys i'm gonna say actually the i think that aside from the lucifer death the cliffhanger at the end of the 17th issue where it was like Persephone as a show for me, I think was just like, I, as I get probably, you can already tell, I really liked Laura for like the whole thing. So like to lose her was like, as a driving force is really like, I was really upset by it. And I was like, it was like the same fake out where I was like, ugh, they're doing one of those things where they like, make a choice with me. And I was like, okay, fine. New, pr- new protagonist, new driving force. 
So for me, that was like really, I think it's like, I think the book has been really effective at like really like misleading me and like giving me a taste of it and then taking it away just enough for me to like not assume it's actually going to happen. Because like, I feel like I'm really excellent, like being like, this will happen for certain. But like with this book, I was constantly like, oh no, just give up on that idea. If it hasn't happened, it won't happen. And then it happens. So I think that they have great timing. And so for me that, like even that last cliffhanger, I was like, ah, um, and I like wanted to read more, but then we had to do the podcast. So I'll read more in a second. Uh, Jake, how about you? Would you say that it was on a scale of Game of thrones would you say it was Ned Stark, Red Wedding, or like like Saggy Boobs, Melisandre? <laughs> let's see ned stark or saggy boobs melisandre or tough. or red wedding <laughs> so it's that in descending or, order or hold the door it's an ascending order hold or the hold the door, the door. yeah no or hold the door <laughs> <No>. <laughs> i felt so bad for him i mean they made oh, it was awful he, what? he was asking for it i <laughs> made uh yeah terrible. I w- for me it was like it was like ned stark I mean, I remember when I was reading the comic, I actually was sitting there totally shocked when she was when she died, like completely stunned. Laura, I don't remember the last time I had that reaction in a comic and that, you know, comics have these cliffhanger twists all the time. But I I thought this one was so effective. See, and uh, for me, that's how I felt about Lucifer's, because it seemed a lot more like Lucifer was going to be more of a, a, a guide to Laura. So when by the time that she got her godhood or whatever i was still stuck in oh yeah of course she got it mm-hmm. yeah that's fair i kind of feel like a not i'm not gonna say ananke ananke that's what i say ananke i kind of thought lucy was ananke's favorite so the fact that she, she was not? the one that killed her boy you'd be hard pressed to tell i know yeah i mean now <laughs> especially the now whole, i have the whole no thing idea was a lie. <laughs> all of it was a lie but in the first issue or the first uh trade at least I thought for sure Lucy was Nunke's favorite, and then she kills her. Boy, I yeah, I really don't know. I don't, I don't know what to think about that. I don't know what to think of Nunke anymore. Mm. Well, she's yeah. a cold-hearted, murderous. Yeah, she is. Or person. She is an <laughs> an older woman who <laughs> understands things to come and is taking action to. And she's like the Carol from Walking Dead. But no. really, nothing to do with her at all. Like kind of from the movie, from the movie, from the situation. There is no movie from the TV show. Agreed. Wait, what, Jamie? Yeah, agreed, Jamie. I said I think she's kind of Professor Xing the situation, but like not in a good way. Basically, Professor Xing the situation. Right? She, yeah, she's manipulating it, but unlike Professor X, she's using murder. <laughs> Professor Xavier <laughs> never <laughs> manipulates or I, uses anything. I like got that. the feeling like she was the bad, like she was the destroyer. Was that? Ooh, yeah, that dark yes, force you're they correct. talk about. Okay. Oh. Okay. So, yeah, I got the same nice. impression. So yeah. then she's like, I don't know, Dr. Doom or something. She's also waiting a long time. Her plans are taking a very long time, forever. Thousands of years. More than that, right? Then every 90 years. Every, well, every yeah, were they showing up before civilization or humanity? Well, she makes yeah. reference show up to it. Yeah, 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 I think she they makes were. Reference to it. Yeah. They, they were. show up in the middle of, oh, yeah, okay. But they, but she, I think she said that they, had, the they, had, they had like a different system before. It wasn't like in those intervals or something. Yeah, different system. <laughs> All right, cool. So like many good stories that have been told, and especially in the last 15 years or so, uh, I feel like Wicked and the Divine breaks a lot of rules of conventional commercial storytelling. So for me, the death of Laura, as I mentioned earlier, was reminiscent of Hitchcock's Psycho, and that the main protagonist doesn't survive the entirety of the story, but is still with us for, I think, over half, or the first two acts, unlike Ned Stark, um, mm-hmm. to draw that distinction. But, but Ned Stark was only there for like the first act. It wasn't even like the first act. If you look at it now, it's like the prologue. Leave Jake alone, Jamie. He was just <laughs> trying to connect to I the think younger. Jake is correct. 
What 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 do you mean? How Jake? No, you just you just negated him. <laughs> Whoa. No, I'm saying that it's You're like the, it was the first act. Like I mean, the first act of Psycho ends with Janet Lee dying. I think it's the second act, isn't it? No, and just the third act is. Oh, if you count if you, if you count her getting to the hotel as the second act, but that's probably like more like I don't know. We should uh, we should read the it's, script. It's only thirty. It's only like thirty eight minutes into the movie, and it's like an hour and a half. Oh, I didn't know more. that. We really need okay two things. We really need some Hindu people on this. Psycho. And the other thing is we need someone who watches Hitchcock. Yeah, Psycho. It's a movie. I, I watched Psycho a lot of times. Dun, dun. Yeah, it's no, a, I'm aware. What was that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is, this is <laughs> not the like, level of discussion our audience has come to love from us. Okay, so anyway. Uh, I think this is about it. <laughs> <laughs> so did anyone take else take note of the unconventional storytelling? And if so, do you think the creative team was successful in things like killing off Laura, like Ned Stark, or like or or not like Janet Lee from Psycho? I think it's I think it's a little early to tell whether or not it'll be successful in terms of of Laura slash Persephone's death. And then as far as like uh, unconventional storytelling, I don't know. I don't know if that really succeeds, at least for me, until like the third volume commercial suicide because as i was reading uh the first and second volumes uh for this podcast i i really it felt sort of disjointed and like the like obviously we're seeing things through laura's eyes but some of the facts were just plain and laid out and we were very we were seeing very surface level characterization but then in in commercial suicide that's when we really go in and grab hold of all the characters really that's when it all really felt like it was being more put together for me i agree uh for me it started to all come together in the the third volume anybody else yeah i mean they've said that this was going to go between 30 and 60 issues which is obviously a huge range but that means that we're probably not even halfway done with yeah the, we're probably a quarter into it yeah here. so if you expand that out then the end of the second trade you know that's more like the first act if you will <laughs> if i were to make a comparison here it would probably it be back. i don't know ned stark probably ned stark yeah oh my god i feel so bad for the people who have not read game of thrones and uh, he dies he dies he dies spoiler alert he dies you know what just in case uh for those people who haven't seen the sixth sense he's been a ghost the whole time um but i thought wow. it was a good time nice. to say that yeah but i think we're getting to the point where new people haven't seen it like new souls are born that have not seen that um does anybody else have anything to say about the unconventional storytelling because i agree that you know we can't really see the fruits of the labor of the writer we can start to see it you know we can start to feel it working for those of us who feel it working uh christine I didn't know. I didn't like exactly think it was like unconventional storytelling. I felt like the plot felt very like, you know, there was the build up, the initial like, you know, uh, like foe or like, you know, oh God, what, I'm like, forgot how to speak English. Like there was that initial sort of like plot twist, but that wasn't really like the plot twist because then they reveal the whole like Prometheus gambit. So for me, like the, the storyline, the, the storytelling just felt like super conventional, not in like a bad way. It just didn't like nothing about it was like particularly shocking to me. I don't know, like even the deaths, like I didn't find Lucifer's death or Laura's death or any of the death of the gods actually to be that shocking. Although I did find Ananki's like the, fa the fact that Ananki was behind it all to be more surprising. But again, like I kind of got that Doctor Doom vibe from her anyways, like by the beginning of the second book. So I didn't, I didn't really feel it was particularly shocking. Jamie, how about you? Just kind of going off of what Christine said, I will think there, I say that like, I think because of the murder mystery aspects, there were some things that were predictable. Like I also think it's like 
very comparable to a lot of noir storytelling, kind of like this corrupt world. Everyone's trapped in and there's like a conspiracy at the top. I think that the book does a good job of like purposely getting me off the trail enough. So like, I feel like I feel like most books don't like red herring me in, in this way. I'll say that's the thing that I think is different because like most red herrings are like, oh, this character obviously seems to be doing it. Whereas this book would like purposely like literally focus my attention with the like story on something different. So like whenever so like now when I look back on it, I'm like, oh, of course, there was like a conspiracy about these murders and they're all connected. But like in the moment, I was so interested in slash concerned with other characters or other stories that like when they revealed the noir thing on the top again I was like oh right like I forgot that, that was even so I will say it's like it's conventional and like when I look back on the plot I'm like that's like A to B to C to D but like when I think about the way it was revealed to me I was like I was always kind of like it wasn't shocking but I never expected it at the moment I got it which is I think actually I think that's what makes it a compelling comparison to Game of Thrones not even just Ned Stark but like to Game of Thrones in general because like Game of Thrones always is a thing where like I know it'll happen but I like literally never know when it'll happen so it always blindsides me in a way that like I like usually enjoy. I think we should have a disclaimer that if you're expecting to read Game of Thrones with Wicked and Divine, you're going to be sorely upset. Not upset, but there's absolutely no correlation between the two except those two things. Am I right? Except that we made a correlation mm. between them. Now it's right now. So the psycho comparison and the Game of Thrones comparison are both productive. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I had let go of the psycho one before. Now yep. I was just attacking Game of Thrones. And plus, if you had to choose one. Probably Game of Thrones, right? I would so, choose. Now I, I would choose I Game would, of Thrones. Actually. I would choose Game of Thrones. I think most people Kill would everyone. choose Game of Thrones. Well, well, except most people who haven't seen Game of Thrones have only seen Psycho. They would probably do, do those. Cal, like you have something to say? There's like, no question. Who hasn't seen Game of Thrones? <laughs> never seen Game of Thrones. Oh, oh, you never saw Game of Thrones. I thought you had something to say. Well, spoiler. So I don't. Yeah, I don't know anything about what you guys are talking about. Oh, okay, cool. Kale can wait. Be, who the, hasn't seen Game of Thrones? Kale. Kale. Oh my. Uh, the benevolent kale. Trendy kale. Never seen Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm uh, I'm uh, too hip for your uh Kale, if you want to learn how to murder people, I think Game of Thrones is a great new thing for you to watch. Oh my god, yes. You would love what yeah, happens. Yeah, if you Theon like murders, Greyjoy? this is the show for you. Yeah. <laughs> I love murder. He would like so. totally Theon Greyjoy someone. He would. I think oh, that he has no. some Theon look in how, him. Look how happy he is. <laughs> no, he has Ramsey in him. Oh, Jesus. Oh, my goodness. Oh my Please no. don't say that. I don't oh, want to meet boy. him in person now. No, Who I just, hates I just got, them? Who said that? Marco I got, was laughing. Said it. Yeah. I, 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 I just got an obscene gesture. You've been insulted. Jacob I don't, don't, I don't know. think. You know that <laughs> 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 comparison to Ramsey is an insult. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That wasn't obscene. That wasn't really that obscene. It's just a scissor. No, yeah. The point is, what does Kale, that even mean? Where does it go? Where does it go? Okay. <laughs> so obviously, one of the thinner metaphors deals with godhood and the wicked and divine is having the status of famous recording artists. So there are some obvious visual cues to some real life recording artists. At least there was one that I saw in the first issue. You guys didn't catch them? You look like so confused. Did you? Did you say I, that was I, one of the thinner metaphors? Yeah, I would. I would say it's one of the bigger metaphors. I would say that's. No, 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 I would thin, say that's the exact metaphor. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> obvious are you guys retarded a thin a thin metaphor yeah, means it's an, thank out. you emily yes for those of us who like learn the english language <laughs> emily would you like to tell everyone what a thin metaphor is it's obvious yes an obvious metaphor no but what's it mean <laughs> guess what uh, we're gonna f yes. we can talk about that right now in this next <laughs> section so you're in mother <laughs> fucking luck <laughs> um, it's, it's wishes happen to be horses today for you. I don't. All right, I don't so, understand why I can't just ask a question. Because hello, because you're not the <laughs> fucking host Wait, of this podcast. You're Kale, supposed to answer questions. Kale, are you kidding? No, I legitimately no, genuinely retarded. I what promise. does it mean? I, I I no. I thought I thought what he was saying was the opposite of what he meant. I really didn't know. Uh, but now you know. 
Well, yeah, because I'm getting swore, <laughs> I'm getting sworn at, and knowing is half the battle. I didn't even know he didn't know that. I no, I was legit. I wasn't giving you a hard time. I was legitimately asking. No, I I appreciate that. It's uh, when someone doesn't know something, feel free to always ask. Just not me. I, no, I'm kidding. Thin metaphor is good. I only heard, know because I heard Joss Whedon say it. Um, <laughs> but to be fair, I just picked it up. I didn't have to look it up or have anyone explain it to me in detail. Like I just had to with you. You should you should feel um, free, but just know that you're gonna take a beating. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Exactly. Okay. Anyway, back to those of us who have an IQ over ninety. So there are obvious visual cue. I'm just kidding, Cal. Is that a low IQ? Uh, <laughs> It's the level said, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> it is pretty good. It's higher than your GPA. Hmm. Just yeah. Kidding. I mean, no, we had a <laughs> Cal and I had a private joke about. It, it wasn't really private. It was actually just a joke with myself about his GPA. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, go ahead and put it out in the public. That's fine. <laughs> and Rich, if I knew it, I would have been very terrified. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, no, seriously. He's a very smart man, this Kale Ward. And you should read his comic, Cosmic, number one, two, and three. Oh, the worst part of that is it's not even my comic. Just ki- Okay. You know what? Why are we even plugging something that has nothing to do with you either? Okay. When you said he's a very smart, smart man. For a second, I thought you meant Joss Whedon. And I was like, nah. No, I don't agree wait, why, wait, Kale, why are we plugging a comic that you had nothing to do with? Works so no, yeah, it's, it's in my company. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, he's in it's charge my of colleagues. It. Yeah. He wrote it. No, away. I, I didn't do that. <laughs> All right, this is horrible. All right, so what let's... What is true, what is false? We, we got off to a bad start on this. Yeah, we did. Okay, ready? Out. Okay, ready. Oof. Okay, anyway, obvious visual cues uh, to some real-life recording artists. Did any, who, who did you guys see in, in Wicked and Divine? Marco. Uh, a lot of people from Prince mm-hmm. to I saw Stevie Nicks. Oh, I didn't see Stevie Nicks. The Beatles. There was just pop references. Who is Stevie Nicks? Um, I think the one with the butterfly face. Uh, yeah, not okay. I mean, oh, I mean uh, Amaterasu. Oh, Silas. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Who? Okay. Uh, who else? Jamie. Oh, and Christine. Christine, uh, you're, well, you're giving uh, us the like ones a gang people symbol. already listed, but also um, look, Lucifer's suit. It's very oh, reminiscent of Madonna. No, oh, what? Yeah. No, that's yeah, David yeah. Bowie. No, like, no, no, but her suit. Well, yeah, also Bowie, definitely. but like it yeah, has. Outfit, I think that definitely. in what's his name in Yanka. Inanna. Inanna? I think he is more <laughs> prince. That was I, prince. As far as I've been, I've been, I've read things about how he's a very firm prince. Yeah, no, he Rest. was he, he was definitely prince. He was as far in as purple. I was Total no. prince. That was prince. Yeah, he was all purple. Uh, Christine. Sackmet is that how you say her name? Sackmet. Yes. yes. She looked just like Rihanna to me. Thank was you. I one? That was oh, the first one I noticed. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that one. Yeah. yeah. No. They actually they refer to that I think as being on the they? Laura is saying that occasionally she draws the gods and. I think she says that she drew her, and it wound up looking more like Rihanna. Yeah, she did. Yeah, she did. Right. Well, she looked. Ex- she's like a dead ringer yeah. for Rihanna. Mm-hmm. When I first when I first saw her, I thought Rihanna had made her way into the Wicked and the Vine. That's what I thought yeah. too. No, I was like, definitely. how did they get the license for Rihanna? <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, how timely! Like, how apt! Like, they're actually including <laughs> real pop stars. In yeah. Here. No, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, who knew? Uh, who, and and know? of course, Wotan is one half of Daft Punk. I'm forgetting which one. Yes, I don't yes. listen to music, oh, so it's hard. Woden? <laughs> Woden. 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 Yeah. He's like the main He's the EDM. Dude, right? I was like, the spell checker, whoever spell checked this, doesn't know how to spell wooden. <laughs> they keep saying Woden <laughs> and putting a capital. And uh, anyway. All right, anyway. What is Woden's deal? Can somebody clarify? Does he not have a body? Like, I'm confused. I think it, he, he ruined his body. Yeah, he It looks it. ugly because he tried to give himself, like, a power, and it, like, didn't work. Yeah, it sounds oh, like okay. he makes a comparison to Odin in that he like messes up his face to get wisdom or something. But it, it seems like it doesn't work in Woden's 
Yeah. Well, he gives out powers to Valkyries. So he mm. tries to, I think you say he tried to give it to himself and it didn't work. Right. Okay. Oh, I see. And then he just like has visions of his fellow gods like having sex in his helmet. Is that what that is? Well, he, or does he like create a virtual reality? I'm like, no. Was very confused by that part. It seems like he creates like devices and like cameras and, you know, part of his like power or whatever is a very, uh, techno, what's the word I'm looking for? Techno organic, techno based. Yeah power mm-hmm. so he uh yeah he uses like that ring that he gives uh amaterasu to mm-hmm. yeah like spy on her and you're just like oh. oh i see butchering these names all of i us. thought that was pretty good <laughs> no but that was good for that was good for cal what were you gonna say jake yeah can we can we take a second to talk about his story there's that scene in mm-hmm. um somewhere in commercial suicide i think it's the issue that uh mm-hmm. mckelvey well there's that scene yes that it's the issue that mckelvey did that's Woden's issue in that arc. And he has that confrontation with Ananke. And it seems like he's not a full god or something like that. Did anybody... I mean, I think that's going to develop into a major storyline. I think he's going to come later. up a lot more. I wondered, I wondered if that wasn't just Ananke taking a shot. Like, oh no, you're not stepping up to me right now. We are not on the same level. She calls him a dog, doesn't she? Well, yeah. Yeah. A dog? Well, because yeah. she uses but, him, I mean, like, to do all her bidding, right? Like, he mm-hmm. was. she uses him to, like, mastermind this whole, like, kill all the other gods plot. What does she say about Surf? That, I, he, that he's I, not even he's a, a less surf. Than a he's surf. Yeah, he's, he's less, less than a surf. He's a You don't even get close to a surf. But yeah. when she, she says... she remembers surfs. Yeah, th- there's that whole... S- she looks like she remembers the surfs. <laughs> 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 She's seen a surf or two. There's that whole section she Several. says, you are but the pet of a god. We both know exactly what you are. Yeah. That, could that refer to any of them or is, is there something special about him? I feel like I think there's it something could be special a reveal about, about him. him. Yeah. And then I have who, no idea what his storyline is, Who honestly. is this at the end yeah, of that the, issue? I don't the know. person who looks like okay. it. Like it looked like it, it was that suit that he offered um, yeah, it wasn't his, his Valkyrie, his Valkyrie or whatever. Right. That's what I thought it was. It but like. who's in the suit? Is anyone um, in the suit yet? I mean, for them to be talking, I imagine that, that yeah, someone has to be, be someone. Yeah, someone is supposed to be in there. But we don't know, right? As of yet, we don't know, no. Because they talk back. The suit talks back, right? Yeah. So it's got to be someone. But what if they're just imagining the suit talking back? That's probably a fair What's question. Real? What's so real? What's so postmodern. What isn't? Yeah. Simulacrum. I don't know what that is, but that sounds very intelligent. Christine and goes go to that. the University of Chicago, like after a- all. <laughs> It's a copy yeah, of a copy like, of a copy. He tells her it's like that. like when you walk down Disneyland, is Main Street real? That's how I learned it. Oh, is it? It's a copy of a copy of every town. It's of, like it's not real anymore. Of it's every so single town? derived from the original Yeah, it's version. like just an image. Okay, we, we need to stop talking about this. This is becoming a It's a lot. It's heavy. It's not. And it's just a stupid thing academics use to say they're smarter than other people. Just so you know, I really got it. Bone I was just seeing where you guys were going with this. It's really fun Bone when you can talk. gets it. You should read what the Columbia Wiki says about University of Chicago and Princeton. It's really fun. Ooh, hysterical. I'm Ooh, sure it's uh, great. I do have a... Just a just a side note that, yes, is, that is kind of uh, related, but also not to anything we've talked about. Did anyone read uh, Young Avengers by Gillen and McKelvey? Yes. Doesn't Woden's like winged helmet situation kind of look like Kid Loki's tiara crown thing? Do you think? Sort of. I mean, I can kind of see it. Not exactly, but like I could see where you could see that. Okay, so it's yeah, it's not yeah. a it's not an unfounded comparison. Yeah, yeah, I can see it. <laughs> All right, so let's move on from this quagmire. So 
I thought of Ananki as kind of like this metaphor for corporate record record labels. She's like, you know, giving her power to people, taking people from anonymity and making them gods, giving them powers of song and fame and destruction and creation and all kinds of powers. Do you guys agree with that? And, and, and if so, in what ways do you think she's a metaphor for corporate record labels? Marco? I say she's like big business. She's in it for mm. who's hot. And once they're no longer a big deal, you know, you can you can kill them off. Like it's a really, for me, yeah, the, the finger snap, you just, you just, you just knock them off because they're no longer necessary. They're not giving you the kind of profits that you need. And you can sort of say that she uses Woden as a way to irk other artists or other other personalities to keep them on edge or just to maybe even influence something that influence something for her for anake so i i i see her as that kale is that your arm up or just no i i i I do agree with you that's a really good comparison that i hadn't thought of but no i i I don't have anything anybody else yeah i mean explicitly they're all performers which is ironically when they're at their weakest in the story but uh also, the fact that they turn what is what is the big event called Ragnarok? The Ragnarok, Ragnarok, right? They turn it into the they take it from being this little panel and turn it into like I don't know, like Burning Man or whatever. Yeah, the, ex- exactly. The hot big concert is so. Now. I think that's a that's a great observation, Justin. I'm curious to see how far they take it. Like, why would she organize this big thing if she's trying to kill them? To because, keep her, I mean, I, I see to keep her away from the spotlight. Like if if she if she distracts other people, um, with the music, with the with the show more than anything, it sort of takes her away takes her away from that. She's not up front or anything. She can do things behind the scenes a lot easier when there's a big distraction. I also love about the twenty seven club. Like if you kill someone when they're in the height of their fame and mm. early on their fame lives on, and you can keep making money off of them. Totally. Oh yeah, they kind of exploit that a little bit with uh, Tara. Yeah. And like the in the Twitter mentions, you kind of saw it go from like grossly sexualized and and misogynist to kind of um, sorrowful and mm-hmm. uh, you know we uh, like what's the word I'm looking for? Marco, help me out. <laughs> Remorseful. That's the Remorseful. word. Yeah, you know about her death and how great of an artist she was, and have respect because she actually was very talented. They put her on a pedestal. Yeah, after her death, not before. But how does that help? Ananke. I guess, I mean, th- these are parts of the story that are going to develop. Right, we don't know yet. We don't know what her <laughs> Does she, like, is. maybe she kills them early? Like, they don't actually die in two years, she just kills them early, so, like, there's she never gains is their power or something, or the years. rest of their lifespan, because that would ex- kind of explain how the fuck she's so old. Ooh, yeah, that's, that does explain why she's so old. I like it. And I have yeah. to say, if there's like, a- Maybe she, like, kills them early. She tells them they only have two years to live, so they, like, expect to die, but then she, like, can just kill them early, or, you know, mm. they just, like, kill themselves. Like, in the beginning panel, like, when we opened the comic, it's, like, basically all the gods, like, killed each other, right? Like, in the, the 1930s 1920s, or yeah. something. And then, so maybe they just, like, take... By, like, killing each other, like, Ananki, like gathers all their years for herself i don't know i'm just wingballing it i also think that i know who could be cast perfectly as a nanki and it it, it reaches into the game of thrones cast in the older melisandre (laughs) i'm serious yeah Yeah. i mean she has like the nicest costumes though of everybody yeah no she does yeah i was like really nice she has some nice colors i was thinking about the uh, the old lady from uh downton abbey 
Love her. I can't Maggie wait. Maggie Smith? That's the one. Maggie Smith. Thank yes. you. Yes. Dame Maggie Smith? Yeah, she's the one. Yeah, I could so see that good. one. She's a little really famous, well. I think. I don't know. Maggie Smith? I know who that is, but I've never seen Downton Abbey. Well, she was in. She's very famous for other things. She was things, in Hook. She was, uh, oh, she was Hook. Granny Windy and Hook. Yeah. She was, uh, I believe she was in Harry Potter. Yeah, she, she was. was I don't know why I, we're all giving Kale shit oh. today. <laughs> I don't know. I've never seen Harry Potter, so I don't know. So now I'm, I'm like the new Kale. This you? is actually a Harry Potter podcast. What was, <laughs> what was wrong with you? I'm, a, I'm an adult. Okay. Yeah, so, it helps. I haven't seen Harry Potter either still. So. Oh, shit. Sorry, Kale. Kale's a child. All right. All right. So why do you guys think rec- recording stars and not politicians might have been the better choice for the godhood metaphor in Wicked and, Wicked and the Divine? Can I go? Yeah, please. Oh. By all means, Marco. <laughs> Let it rip, Marco. Cause... Can I make a joke first? Okay. Because they wanted it to be interesting. Ooh. I don't get it. <laughs> I don't get it. Because Pollock. Pollock. Wow. You got it, buddy. <laughs> all right, my apologies, Marco. I thought that would kill, so to speak. <laughs> Misread the crowd. <laughs> oh man. Okay, so yeah, no, it's the perfect. It's it's a perfect example because I mean, it's the perfect like metaphor because that's how we treat pop stars. That's how we treat people who are so influential to us artistically. I can, for one, say that I'm. I play guitar, and for me, someone like Jimi Hendrix is on another level because it's something that was innovative, different. It was something that I strive for, and that's something that. Is just it's just perfect for for this for, to use musicians because that is how we we view them. We put them just like Emily said on a pedestal, and even more so after they've they passed because you can't recreate art. That's something that solely belongs to those people, and it's after someone's gone, it's it's no longer attainable. Uh, Emily Feinstein. So, kind of going off of what you're saying, Marco, the fact that we're we're in the comics industry, we're reading comics, we all are creative people. I feel like people who read comics are sort of creative in themselves in whatever medium that they choose. This fits us. I can relate to a music industry much better than I ever could to politics because I don't understand politics. I don't understand that mindset of fighting with each other and building a government and whatever. But if I really had to, I could probably sit down and create a comic. Because that's how my mind works. Well, and, and, and so much of music is, is even if, especially when you don't make it from like a fan's point of view, like it's so personal that you want so much more of it from, from the artist that, and, and we see this in, in Tara's issue that, you know, you want so much more of it that you like demand it and you want it to be yours and you're, you're, you're craving it from the artist obsessively so that it's not theirs for that i would say that i don't think it's somewhat no i I agree with you it's you know it's personal but i would also say it's so prevalent in this book because music especially in like pop music or popular music is visual it's really it's it's very visual so much so that most people look at a music video first and then decide that they enjoy the the album or the single itself and in in terms of tara tara she would hide her face. She didn't want it to be visual. She wanted it to be about the music, but that's not what people wanted. People like with the with the Twitter comments, they were they weren't looking at that. They were looking they weren't listening to that. They were looking at her body. They were judging her visually because that's how we view the that's how we view pop music. We we don't we don't view it for what it sounds like. We we look at it 
and that's why I, I think that yeah, this is perfect for it. I sort of want to ask you, but I don't want to have to ask you, but do you think that you or people have a, a closer relationship with Jimi Hendrix than they do with whatever religion they were born with? Jake says yes. Emily is smiling. Marco is now smiling. Well, I thought, I thought you were taking the question in a different direction and referring back to what you asked originally. Mm-hmm. Like, is it more appropriate to um, analogize them to pop stars than to politicians? And a lot of the language that we use surrounding pop stars is kind of the same as with gods, like worship or, you know, cult, that kind of thing. So I, I think that's, to me, it's clearly more effective. You can use a lot of the same imagery even. In terms of like relationship between a pop star and your religion, I'm not sure. I I mean, I don't know where they would take it if it were just that they're gods. You know, I think this is a more interesting way of representing it and allows the comic to comment on some different topics. No, I agree too. I think that uh, I think one reason they chose not to do politicians is because of a quote Ananki later says that I'm trying to find that is something about, oh, yeah quote was something she says about that the more contact the the gods have with mortals the weaker they become essentially the more they reveal the the i forget what she says but the more they reveal the less godlike they are in some way and i thought that politicians to me are like of the people uh christine and then marco oh i was just gonna go off of what jake was saying and that i think it's more appropriate to you know compare these gods to pop stars and idols because you don't like we don't we don't idolize like politicians at least i don't know anybody who idolizes a politician but we idolize pop stars in a way that's like almost obsessive very similar to the way that the fandom is per- like depicted in the wicked and divine and that you know like to just take a very like modern cultural reference like the way people idolized you know the members of one direction or you know beyonce like the bay hive you know it's like kind of like this cult religion where people are like you know divide themselves into camps so i could see how you know you could take a pop star and make connections to religion and i like idolization and worship because you know people nowadays worship pop stars to an insane degree i mean just if you like look on twitter at all you know when that Beyonce line about Becky with the good hair, like the Bayhive swarmed into action and was, you know, tagging Rachel Ray or Rachel Roy or something, um, like the Fuge celebrity chef <laughs> instead of Rachel Ray, who I think the comment was actually about. So, like, I'm just saying that I think it's very apt to compare these gods to politicians because we idolize pop stars, like we idolize gods. Emily, you look I like guess- you want to take it home. So I kind of have something more to go off what everyone else is saying. I really love how deep they are going into the music in a sense, because I feel that music, when you do worship it, at least from one specific artist, if not from a whole genre or whatever, is it becomes almost a physical feeling, like an emotional feeling, listening to a song or listening to a soundtrack. And this is exactly what they're doing to their audiences. They're making it a physical manifestation within everyone. And that's like the whole point of the concert, especially with, not gonna remember his name, the one we were saying that looked like Moby. Ball? No. uh, Dionysus. Dionysus. Dionysus? I don't like him anymore if he's Moby. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, pay, you know, that's only what we came pick, up with. Pick your bald celebrity. I mean, he's yeah. only a loose Moby. Okay. Yeah. Maybe like, Moby. like Bruce Willis or but something. But it was like Pitbull, he maybe. is possibly Pitbull. He is very oh, much yeah. about making his audience feel euphoric. 
Yeah, that's what he he when they uh when Ananke and Woden reveal Tara's uh body in the in the hospital, he he he's storms out because he's like I left because I, I left my my people because yep. you called me here. Yep. For no reason. For no reason. And his people, his audience is more important than yeah. the death of his fellow god. Uh, I would say that I actually I would disagree with your first point about the music because Damn. <laughs> because <laughs> for me when I try to market let's say like like my band I'm not marketing my music I'm trying to market a package I'm I'm not looking for someone to listen to the music I'm looking for someone to be enticed in the entity or the per, or the entity that is the band or the musician so your like, brand, right? Exactly. It's it's about it's about the brand and the same thing that uh, Justin said with the quote. What, what was what was the quote? We never found the quote. Oh well, you know, you said something. Anaki said that the more they the more they reveal, the less godlike they are. Something like that. That's because you look you have to look at, at the surface of what a musician or an artist is. If you, if you start like digging in deep, you start learning about their secrets, their past, and they become. They get they get humanized. They're humanized, right? And okay, and you don't you don't want that for for a brand because you can't market that. You can market you can market Beyonce because you she's have to keep it on the pedestal, right? You have to keep it on the pedestal, yeah. So, do you think that's why the the gods get weaker when they perform because they're putting themselves out there like that? Yeah, because that because, because, because that, they're what? showing they're showing their their art and their art is personal, and so that. That art when they go out, that's when they're. That's why they're at their weakest. At least that's the way I see it. Yeah, because like what you just described is basically what Tara wanted to do with like her poetry and her and her right, music. Right. But that doesn't work. That's not not in today's music. Not in today's world. music. Yeah. It it doesn't work. It's not about that. It's about how you can market yourself and how you can make yourself viable and how you can make Ananke in this case successful or the big the the big business successful. That's sort of interesting then with uh, Tara is the fact that she was very beautiful. She was very well made up. Uh, that scene, I think it was issue 13, she's on the red carpet sort of thing, and she has mm -hmm. that dress, and it's really swirly, and it's curvy. Mm -hmm. And then the panel points down past her face, right, and, she's and it like, shows, and she goes, no, I'm up here. Right. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. the camera raises, and we look at her face all of a sudden. That's but exactly what you're saying. Is They're not marketing her. They're marketing they're not, her appearance. Yep. But she kept herself covered in her face, right? She can't. She kept because she she needs to. She can't. She can't let people see past the mask, or else she's not. She's not Tara anymore. Right. She's just whoever else she was, and that's what that that issue talks about. Like she was just another nobody until she got that power and she put on the the mask. And I will say, Jake Grubman has MVP'd himself and found the actual quote. <laughs> oh, but now it's we don't we've lost it. Okay, but uh, we're finding it again. And the actual quote is... She's, Ananke is talking to... What's his name? Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce his name. What, let me I see. don't either. Baphomet? Baphomet. Yeah, Baphomet. Yes. I wasn't sure if the PH combined there, but uh, I suppose it does. Baphomet? <laughs> that's, how, that's how I was reading it. It's kind of like when I was a kid reading... It does sound like... Harry like it, Potter. Like it, would be, it does sound like it would be like an Egyptian god. Uh, I've, well, I, I've only heard Baphomet uh, mentioned that name like in other fiction. Isn't he Irish? Isn't Baphomet an Irish god or something? Like a deity or... Could I think be. he is. Nobody did their research. 
on each I think con. I think Baphomet's like a Irish god, and he has like the goat head, and then you sacrifice things to him, and you revive the dead. It's like what I kind of remember. This feels like I'm in college, and my teacher's like, "Do you know what this is a reference to?" And everyone's like, "No," and he's like, "Did you not Google it?" And we're all like, "No." <laughs> Obviously, we did it. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. I mean, I didn't. I just learned the Irish had gods. I just but thought they were the, just nice, like a, the Knights Templar. Well, I, don't, I actually don't it's think like he's a god. Isn't he just like a minor, like, like a like a like a symbol or something? And then like Morgan, oh, what's your name? Morgana. Morgan. Had to, Morgana. Morgan. The Morgan. The Morgan. The Morgan. The Morgan had to like plead it's with a non. Term from the Knights of Templar. Yeah. And it says a term originally used to describe an idol or other deity. The Knights of the Templar are used for worship. So, what's the ruling on the? It's a it's a goat. It's a 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 you make yourself vulnerable. All gifts have their price, which is that was so worth it. <laughs> I think it's only exactly yeah, what you said. I'm curious how that extends to you know, it kind of bridges the metaphor, I guess, because it's talking about both performing and these like metaphysical gifts that they have. I don't know. I guess I'm trying to figure out how that applies directly to the god part of things because I, I can see how performers make themselves vulnerable when they're in front of audiences but why does that come into play as part of this metaphor because Jay, uh, can i answer I'll, your question yeah, yeah go am i am i cutting off marco no no no, no 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 we'll 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 jamie marco christine okay i was just gonna say going along with that i was thinking about it and i think that whenever they perform or sing i feel like it's like that moment where the gods look down and they actually like speak to and connect with like the human mortals. Yeah. And I feel like that's like when you're putting yourself at your most vulnerable. So to me, like, it always kind of made sense. And I feel like also kind of related to what Emily was talking about like earlier with the way the music makes you feel like whenever the first issue comes and Laura's describing going to these concerts, it's like whenever they're at the concert, and I mean, I can even say when you go to a concert with a really performer, you feel this way. But it's like whenever you're in the audience with the performer and it like, it feels like you're connected to this person. Which is ridiculous considering you're in a room with like like two thousands of people. But like I feel like that's why they're so vulnerable because like in that moment, like the audience member looks at them and they like see something in that person. They like have an identification moment. And I think that's so I think like the fact that the god is connecting with the more like the humans is the part that makes them so vulnerable. Makes um, the god vulnerable? Yeah. Yeah, because they're kind of like they're showing a connection to a person that's technically below them. Well, they're like, showing the moves away for that moment and they, it's like it's like whenever I like if I went to a Shakira concert and like she sings and like I'm really in the moment I feel like I know Shakira whereas like but she's like not above me anymore like she is me you become so it makes them lesser you are kind of like Shakira <laughs> <laughs> your hips don't lie oh I have never lied Marco uh no yeah I, I definitely agree it's it's a union basically between artists and fan that that's the same way like a god would be when they're communing with whatever deity they believe in there there's a union spiritually and that's that's but, how I, I, I that's the way i see how it relates to the music and to the gods well i'll ask after christine because yeah, right. i don't want to cut you off christine 
Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to go back and like point out, like I kind of have something to say about like Tara and like when you guys were talking about how she has that mask on because she's presenting an image of herself and a brand. And I actually interpreted her storyline as being she wore that mask because she sort of refused because she really wanted people as even as like deity god pop star she like didn't want people to just see her as a god she was really interested in people listening to her actual music so it was actually like a rebellious thing where she was sort of rejecting that brand as a god like she covered up her face because she didn't want people to focus on her outward beauty or her looks and she really wanted people to just like sort of hear her music listen to her and find out who she was as a musician so i think that kind of contradicts like the idea of her wearing a mask as a brand more as like her wearing a mask to basically force her audiences to actually listen to her music and not look at her because she is so beautiful like the sia concept well i mean yeah oh yeah yeah definitely oh yes yeah i can see that definitely yeah like it's about her music and like sort of it is her brand but her brand is not you know tara the beautiful god it's like tara the musician but the they also imply that like when you when you look at the gods like you feel something so i feel like the other implications that like if she closed off her face Mm -hmm. oh did i just lose my yeah and that i think i did no, you're fine. That does yeah, happen in the comic. Uh, where yeah, the, she's like, performing. They see her face, and there's this glow that goes over the crowd. And then she puts the mask on for the song right. that she wrote when she so was I, in college. Yeah, and right. Everyone starts and, booing. Right, because it's not what they. Yeah. That's, that's not what they're coming for. They're not coming for like for that. They were coming for the spectacle that is Tara. Well, yeah. yeah, but like I think people were like kind of like over it because they were they did mention in the comic that she had like a dwindling fan base or something because I think she act like actively refuses to participate in this whole like using her miracles on the crowd to make them idolize her and, right like, that she- spread that euphoria. She wants to be like Tara the musician. Yeah, she um, so to, sort of a she- direct contrast to the whole like brand identity of a god. Right, and and, and yeah, she and, and but when she tries it to sh- to like share her her actual music like she ends up getting yeah like, like what jade said she she ends up getting booed and like yeah they don't they're, they're not a fan um they they they, they, don't, they don't want that basically the people exactly they want people like like amaterasu or whatever you know who are have like an image like a very easily like brand image you know mm-hmm did that answer your question, Jake? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I just, you know, I think about times that I've performed. <laughs> I'll put that in quotations. And uh, I, I felt exposed because you're just up there and you're representing a side of you that doesn't get shown, I think, in daily life. And so that's the vulnerability in that, it's in that sense. But when, you know, in stories where gods are communicating with humans... I understand the point about bringing themselves down to the level of humanity, but I just don't. I guess I'm having trouble seeing the risk that they're taking. I think I well, I I, I kind of feel like my my answer would ju- would really just be. I mean, that's the risk of the story. Like that's the way Baphomet was going to kill Anana. That was the way you know. That's kind of the stake that's in place and i don't i don't necessarily think that's a bad thing i mean it it was creative i think it was done well i think it was like yeah like you you said earlier it was a way to kind of bridge the the godhood with the performer aspect of it and and i i I think it accomplishes that really well i sort of have my own question i'm starting to see this with all this talk is this a reverse sacrifice so we the people aren't sacrificing something to the god the god mm. is sacrificing oh. something to us. Yeah. And becoming vulnerable well, say, because of it. I was going to say, well, just going off of kind of what 
Kale was saying too, like when you were saying like, well, Jake was like, what's the risk? I think because they're so physically vulnerable, it's kind of like the literal manifestation of stage fright. Like you feel like you could die at any minute because like you're just physically weakened. And I feel like they don't have the risk in the sense of like, am I going to be bad? The risk is like, am I going to get killed while I'm on stage? Do you think that there's something to what Jake said regarding the risk on stage? I know from my many years as a famous thespian, I can definitely tell you that most acting teachers will, or professors or directors, not directors, because they don't give a shit about your acting, uh, will tell you that that good acting, decent acting at least, is probably, and being on stage is the process of taking off masks as opposed to putting them on. And I wonder if if you guys haven't talked about this, but if there's kind of a metaphor to like bearing your soul and being on stage and that making you vulnerable because, you know, you're not as protected as you are when you're not performing. I mean, they're, to use a, a Shakespeare term, you're, you're putting yourself out there for, for Dawes to peck at. I think that is the term. So I'm not sure if uh, that kind of brought, or Jake at least got me thinking about that and I thought I should chime in mm -hmm. on it. Yeah, I mean, I think that definitely accords with what Jamie was saying about uh that being a physical manifestation of the right. the feeling. Cool. Okay. So in what ways is the wicked and the divine a commentary on fame in general? And how successful is the creative team at getting across their commentary? I think it depends on who you look at. I mean, you know, in the case of someone like, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, Justin Bieber, you know, it, it start it starts out you know, really, really well. And he's loved and adored by millions and millions and millions and millions of people. And then it just kind of drives him off the deep end. And I think I, I, you know, we could probably argue that, you know, uh, we could see that in cases like Michael Jackson or, uh, <laughs> West. okay. Britney Spears. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I mean, we Karen also, Carpenter. we, okay. I don't know who that is. She's Carpen died of it. I don't know why you, don't, you guys don't like the Carpenters. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. Yes. You would know the song <laughs> yeah. if you knew her hanging around, nothing to do but frown rainy days and Mondays, always baby down kale. Sorry. Continue. Uh, but we also <laughs> see like the other side of it, you know, in like Beyonce and like David Bowie or Prince where it's just, it's the artist trying to make new things and really trying to make an impact all the way to the end. Almost like a steady incline. Yeah, 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 exactly. I think I think that's sort of uh, like, you know, the, the, the idea that they put forth in the first volume is, you know, they can go out at the very top and it's totally cool. We'll see you in 90 years. But with Fandemonium and Commercial Suicide, we kind of see like with Terra and with um, uh, even Lucifer to a degree that it just starts, you know, going off the rails one by one by one and you know as we were saying if and i i i think we're all assuming that if a non case behind it you know we can assume that there's something causing these you know stars to kind of go off the deep end christine well i think it's sort of a thin metaphor for how fame essentially makes you well it's kind of, yeah it's like it's a thin metaphor for like how fame makes you Fame makes you seek more fame in, in that you become, I, I like don't know how to, I like forgot how to speak English, Jesus. Um, no, I think I know what you're trying to like, say. Like the, uh, well, I don't know what I was saying anymore. You're doing great. Yeah, it's like, a, okay, 
what I'm trying to say is that it's like a metaphor for how like fame makes people go crazy because you basically you start self-sabotaging each other in order to become like to keep that fame going because like you don't want your 15 minutes or in their case two years to sort of dry up and that's the whole thing with Baphomet he's like I don't want to die I don't want this to be over so that then he goes on this rage trying to kill all the other gods yeah there's also just the general undercurrent of something like hedonism I'm not sure if that's exactly the right term for that where's Nolan when you need him but no uh, one doesn't know shit about hedonism Oh, Nolan knows about hedonism. I can't. Yeah, I can't tell. Is he joking. an anarchist? He's an anarchist. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. That's what he told me. Nolan is so popular. He's like the gene grab this podcast, and that he's not here, but he's here. Get it? Justin X-Men and I fans? are doing a great job of inserting X Men references into we, this we, podcast. We are, and for some reason, apparently Jake is getting paid by HBO to do Game of Thrones. <laughs> We're doing some. What was yeah. the other plug? Psycho. You're getting paid by Alfred Hitchcock from Beyond the. Grave. I am. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I interrupted somebody. Uh, Jake. Yeah, I don't know if there's anywhere else to take that, but generally speaking, that's how they behave. They, you know, I don't actually know what pop stars do with their free time, but uh, self sabotage. There are like four or five orgy scenes in this in this comic. You know, they're constantly having parties and that kind of thing. I know it's crazy. You never had an orgy in a party. I've never had. I a mean, party. fame destroys you, right? That's like the other metaphor. This is true. Jamie. Just like exasperates what other, other qualities you had in the first place. Oh, Jamie, go for it. I was going to say the other part. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I'm having a, I'm having a Christine moment. Uh, <laughs> what is English? Um, the metaphor is strong. I'm having that make Christine laugh. Uh, wow. That was really happening. I love how Christine right? moment is forgetting <laughs> what you're going to say and how to speak English. <laughs> Justin Christine, our culture editor. Justin, could you repeat the question? Oh, sure. I right after Jamie's done. Oh, see, I I know what I'm going to say now. Uh, I was just going to say that I think the fame metaphor, kind of like we have what Christine said, it's also productive because the idea of killing each other to get more time. So I think it makes sense that it's kind of like you get put into these celebrity feuds, and I feel like the idea is that like you have to stomp someone out in order to continue your own success. I don't think there's ever yeah. been an excellent example in celebrity culture or pop culture of somebody like coming together really and like moving forward in their fame together. So, or at least that's how people perceive it. Like you have to stomp down. It's like Madonna versus Lady Gaga, and only one of them can succeed. Madonna right. versus Courtney Love, like Christine. Or it's like you. Oh, sorry. What were we gonna say? Sorry. Oh, I was gonna say it's like, or it's like basically, so like celebrities or pop stars basically like taking each other out because they're yeah, like there can only be one of them, or they're using each other to like bolster their own fame. Sort of like how Azalea Banks like some for some reason started that random feud with Zayn Malik, and like yeah. it was like so random, but she's using it to to get more fame essentially. I don't know who any of those people are. I didn't know any of what those What is names. an Azalea Bank? <laughs> yeah, guys. Wait, was she the one? I'm so fancy. Is that her? No. Jake's no, like, isn't that, that a flower? Azalea. Yeah, guys. It doesn't feel so good to be to feel left out, I actually it? do know who Azalea <laughs> Banks is. Have right. you ever heard of like the 212, that song? The 212, no. no. Okay, never mind. Don't worry about it. No, you know who Zayn Malik two? is? Nope. No, I don't. Zane Malik. He's the one that left One Direction. Direction. The one that I guarantee you, I know nothing about One Direction. <laughs> he's literally, he's, he's like the only one. Left. <laughs> he's a hero. Know. What direction are they going in? Not mine. That's the only thing the I know. The problem is that Christine and I are very, I think, dabbed, turned into like internet culture, and the internet was really upset about both of those things. They about, were. About what? She got, she know, got suspended on Twitter for that. Yeah, she's not. Azalea Banks is no longer allowed to be on Twitter, and Zane 
really just broke everyone's heart. You can be banned from Twitter? Yeah. Well, That's she, a thing. She, said all this she started, yeah, like, that she started like a fight stuff. with a 14-year-old Disney Channel star. It was like <laughs> so extra. She said extra. all this racist stuff. I mean, but it's yeah, the internet. she said a lot of racist yeah, things. Too, there's another <laughs> that's acceptable like on the internet. Homophobic, <laughs> you can get away with there's, anything. There's <laughs> another conversation to be had about free speech on the internet and why 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 she was targeted for it. But uh, anyway, this is now a Twitter podcast. Yeah. All right. Anyway, moving on. So Ananki says mortals have always shown more interest than gods, than gods ever have in mortals. Uh, generally speaking, gods desire nothing but adoration. True or false? Certain gods. Um, Which gods do you like know, Marco? Pens, I don't. I can't speak for the gods. I have no idea. <laughs> I actually, I, the funny thing is, I didn't know if that was my question. I just said true or false at the end because I noticed I only wrote the quote without a question. Well, I think it depends on the god, right? Because like uh, Hazel Oak, how do you guys, know, do you guys Bush, know all these gods? Okay. Greenway or whatever her name was. She wanted to just like feel special and be Japanese, right? So like, I don't know if she's necessarily doing it for the fame or just to feel like she's special like and Japanese, which is weird. Yeah, those are two and things I've think... always wanted to be special and Japanese. <laughs> yeah. I love how Cassandra also pointed out in the middle of like I think you know the third volume, like that's like kind of problematic. <laughs> And then it was the like fact so how random if, in the middle. Like, you can't. And it, was, it all of a sudden came in, and I was like, "Well, true." Yeah, it was like we were in the hospital mourning Tara's death or something, and then suddenly <laughs> we're in Japan and they're fighting over Hiroshima. Yeah, it was really random. I like Tara. She reminded me of the Native American guy from Marvel, Red Wolf. That's a guy. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I have no idea who that character. Well, she, sure. So Tara, the masked woman, reminded yeah. you of. An Asian American man? No, 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 not a Native American <laughs> man. Red Wolf. How, how many Asian Americans do you know named Red Wolf? None. Oh, Red Wolf. How? Wait, how is she like Red Wolf? I don't know. And she also reminded me of. She also Just reminded like, me of like beautiful. I think it was the the the, it was the face paint. Yes, that. And I also think that wow, that makes me sound terrible, but it's true. And I also think she reminded me of the first Slayer, Jamie from Buffy. Wait, the first Slayer is in wait. The, you mean the one from like the the visions, like in Restless? Yes, the one who was in like seven fifteen. And the tatters. And the tatters. Well, yeah, I mean not her clothes, but more her vibe. Yeah, her vibe. She, she, yeah, she was just like, yeah. How are they similar? Wait, Tara. I think they're just. I honestly, I'm just naming people who wear Tara. face paint. Tara. I'm just naming people who wear face paint. Yeah, that's all. Uh, I was super into Tara because she was beautiful and she didn't give a fuck. I was super into her because she wore that cool mask because she didn't give a fuck. She was like a true artist. Um, she was the true she was like, artist. She was like she was the Bjork. She, she was pure. She Why was there no Bjork in this? There should have been Bjork. They should all be a Bjork. <laughs> you always want more Bjork. They're all, that's who I, Everyone always wants more Bjork. All right, so let's move on because we've got about four hours to do and frankly, I'm already fucking bored out of my mind. So personally, I saw the two-year limit to godhood as a metaphor for something like the 15 minutes of fleeting fame that we all talked about just now that most recording artists experience in the current music industry. There were also some obvious fingers pointed at we the fans ourselves when it came to our need to tear down gods from fame and essentially kill them. Hashtag Britney Spears 2000 something. We made her cut her hair off. I felt really bad. We just wouldn't leave Britney alone. And that one person really wanted to leave her alone and I was with him. So we've all seen the darker side of fandom and, and mob mentality. Fans get the mob mentality fans get when they get behind something they don't like. I personally always tell the story of my Fantastic Four article on how I got a death threat, which I'm still so proud of. 
It was, to me, one of the most meaningful moments of my life. So I think it's Laura who says, whenever I'm sure my opinion of human nature is at rock bottom, the world always finds a way to burrow deeper. Okay. So in about halfway through what we read, Anna Kay says, mortals have always shown more interesting gods than gods ever have in mortals. Generally speaking, gods desire nothing but adoration. So do you guys think that in the stuff that we read, that was true? Uh, yeah, for, for certain gods, it, it, it would, yeah, it, it depends. Like, again, uh, we keep using Tara as an example, but she wanted to be adored, but for different reasons. She wanted to be adored for her personal side, her, for herself, art, for as her, a herself, yeah, for her art, for her, for her suffering. Amaterasu just kind of wanted to have a good time and have everybody join in on the fun uh, Same with Dionysus. Dionysus as well. Yeah, he just wanted to include everybody. He wanted to. Yeah, I, I guess you can say not not worship, but he wanted to be part of the of the people. He wanted to participate with the people. And Woden would be an example of someone who who would probably want to be worshipped. Uh, he has his Valkyries, you know, that stuff. So, so I, I, my answer would be it, it depends the god really. Christine That's, and then Jake. I was going to say, I think it comes down to it. Like every god in their own way just wants to be loved. So depend, like it can differ among different gods. Like, you know, Dionysus and maybe Amaterasu and, you know, Sakmet. They just want to be a part of something and like be loved and not necessarily worshipped, but just be in a community of like loving people versus like, and Tara wants to be loved for her original music and for her as an artist. And like Lucifer and I think um, some of the other gods you know, want like wanted to be want more to be adored in a traditional way. But I think it comes down to all the gods want to be loved in their own way. Yeah, an interesting one for me is Minerva, because she's removed sort of from the rest of the story for a lot of it. Actually, over the last few issues, she has become more integrated. But for a long time, she was totally off the map. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I was thinking about this because she... They they reference her as like a, a god of wisdom, but she's also uh, assuming she's a she. I don't know where that uh, maybe it's a name. I think it's a name. Yeah, um, I think they reference her as a she. Do they? Okay, good. I believe so. Um, yeah. She. It's it's also interesting that she's a child. Like she has all of this wisdom, and she but she's both young enough to not know what to do with it, but also to be held at bay because of her age. Pro, yeah, because of her age. Probably because, uh, you know, she would take the same route as Lucifer or Tara or right. any of the uh, quote-unquote darker figures. They said she was 14, right? 12. Five, yeah. 12. Yeah. 12. Yeah. She was a girl? 12. I thought she was a little boy. I couldn't really tell. Yeah, I, th- I think they reference her as a she. I thought so. But they I thought they referenced she. her as a she because she was Minerva, not because... I, th- I thought it was because she was a she. Okay. I think she's a she. Okay. I'm not sure. But I am curious about what Minerva's kind of backstory is. Mm-hmm. Not just her as a 12-year-old, but also her as a god. Mm. Because the third trade definitely felt like it was going more into depth of each character. A little bit more. We're learning more about them and who they are as a character. And we definitely haven't seen much about Minerva yet. I also, I also, but to that point, I don't know if there's... 
if there's that much to say because she's so young. Laura's, I think it's Laura, says that uh, her parents basically put on the shows and everything and then just take all the money when she performs a miracle or a blessing or a whisper. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that, I mean, that mm-hmm. to me seems like more of a, an indication of her background than almost anything, anything else. else. Yeah. yeah. To me, she reminded me, since we're still sticking with... um like the theme of the music industry uh, a child star uh where you know she she's the act but the parents because she's not old enough the parents Ooh, I like sort, that. Of, sort of take the read they reap the benefits rather than the artist herself all right ananki says you reveal yourself you make yourself vulnerable that was the quote we were looking for before which jake helped us find and i couldn't find it here in the script but in regards to gods revealing themselves to people i can't help but think of how much more accessible famous people are now on social media twitter comes to mind immediately you can tweet famous people and get them to be on your podcast i can also think of uh interviews i've seen with famous people who were really bothered by uh comments that fans made on their social medias about them or twitter accounts in certain in the case that i'm thinking of so do you think that this is what that quote was addressing. And we talked about this a little bit more, but I want to kind of steer it into social media specifically. And, or, you know, do you think it's more about another metaphor as well, perhaps like intimate relationships? What's the question? You reveal yourself, you make yourself vulnerable. Do you think that there's a connection between recording artists in the last few years and being on Twitter? Both Christine and Jamie. Christine, go. I think that there is just because like the more as a pop star, the more or celebrity, the more you reveal yourself, the more that fans feel entitled to your life and your like your personal private life. And so I think that that kind of plays into this like mob mentality that we see with the fandom and how obsessive they are with like the gods and how you know, and I think the gods in many ways feeds off that obsession and that, that adoration and that they continually want to give themselves to their fans. And then it's just kind of a self-serving cycle where they crave more fame. They crave more fans. They crave more intimacy. Because I think the thing about all these people is that they were lacking that sort of intimacy in their lives with their, the people around them, with themselves. So I don't know where I was going with that thought, but that was kind of my idea. No, actually, I couldn't agree more. Uh, Jamie. Uh, going back to the social media thing, I was going to say that thinking about kind of the way that people nowadays can get information out of you based on what you put on social media, I think that like, I was just kind of also going off what Christine said, like the more you reveal on social media, like, I mean, if I, for example, if I'm a famous person and I take a Snapchat video and I post it on my story, I'm a very identifiable place. Like people will be there in like five minutes to like bombard me. So I feel like there is something about like, when you're performing, like if you connect it to social media, at least it's like if you perform on social media and you're famous, it's like just giving people another way to get inside of your life and then like try and take a piece of it. And I think they really also hit on the way that fandom can be hard for the people who are famous in the, like, in the scene where Laura agrees to do that, the signings. And if like anyone tries to talk to her and she doesn't want to engage with them, like she's automatically like a dick. Like it's like there's no like sense of like she has the right as a person to like not say yes to these interviews or these things all the time. It's like her life is no longer her own. It belongs to the public now. I think that's a big struggle that we have in celebrity culture, especially right now, like with Kristen Bell and everyone else who goes on about the privacy of their kids or themselves. And I think that's really like a good metaphor. I think it works a lot in the wicked and the divine. Uh, Christine with a salute. Oh, yes. So I was going to say, I was going to say that yeah, I kind of, I like really agree with that point. You, that last point you made, Jamie, about how, you know, their lives are not their own anymore and it's sort of the idea that like as a celebrity as a pop star as a god in the wicked and divine you are 
a god. You have no more identity besides your brand and you have to be on 24-7. Like you have to be your brand 24-7. Um, and I think that plays into and I don't think it's just I think it's like a universal phenomenon right now. Like globally like i know we talk a lot about western culture and like western media but this i know this is a huge thing and a huge issue in like asian pop culture and stuff like that like where i mean i actually think it's more of a thing in asian pop culture because there are actual like idols and like they're not allowed to have a personal life they're not allowed like if they're caught dating anybody it's a huge scandal and like fans will turn against them instantaneously so it's like a global phenomenon of feeling that your pop stars like they are there to provide you entertainment and an escape um an illusion and a fantasy 24 7 oh jesus christ the whole board lit up uh marco jake kale emily yeah i was gonna say um in terms of what jamie said again her last point it was uh, amy schumer she recently she recently put up a like a post that she would no longer be taking pictures with people because that one guy came up to her in the middle street and he wanted a picture with her but she she just said no you know i'm I'm not really feeling it. I don't want a picture. And he said that he deserved a picture. He was entitled to a picture. And so he attempted to like get in front of her. He was following her and trying to just get a selfie with her. And so, yeah, that, that's that's really prevalent now in, in society. And that relates just to how people... Dehumanize de- famous people. Right. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, you got it. I, I felt like that's what you were trying to say. No, it was. All right, cool. I'm glad. Thank you. Grubman? It seems like... There are levels to this. Jimmy Kimmel has that segment that he does sometimes where he'll have celebrities read mean tweets about them. And the reason that they seem so mean is that the people are reading them not as performers, but as individuals. So, you know, there's this idea that Christine was talking about where celebrities are performing all the time. But the vulnerability comes from the fact that from their perspective, they're not so... I I think it, I think it sort of challenges Ananke's approach to things because I mean it, it's the structure of this discussion is kind of complicated. We're talking about the powers of these uh these gods and then asking about the application in social media. But okay, so if they're most vulnerable when they're actually performing, I don't know if that totally works for me applying to sh- social media because the vulnerability seems to come from the fact that they're that they don't think they're performing all the time yeah i think i agree with that i don't see the social media aspect as necessarily something that would affect their powers because even in the social media aspect you're you're still putting you know a a face on whereas when you're performing it's you know it in in theory you know when you're not just going through the motions it's coming from somewhere deep inside and it 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 does actually mean something I would say that social media, though, in a lot of ways is also performance. Like I know like there was that whole – everything's a scandal now. Uh, There was that whole issue where um, somebody posted on Scott Disick's Instagram the instructions of how to post on Scott Disick's Instagram. Um, Yeah, I remember that. So it's like nobody – yeah, it's like nobody's really doing their – I mean allegedly it depends on the person I'm sure. But people aren't necessarily doing their own social media. So like at that point, like your entire social media presence is like a performance in itself. Like it's even – I I think Ellen just interviewed Kanye West about his tweets um, and how they were so unfiltered. And like it makes you really, for me at least when I thought about that, it made me think about how 
clearly so many other celebrities' tweets are probably extremely filtered. Like there's a whole branding aspect in that too. Like the behind the scene performance is a performance in itself. You could even argue maybe that like the characters of Look- the Wicked End of the Vine aren't necessarily like partying all the time or living this crazy opulent lifestyle that we would associate with traditional pop stars. They're just performing that behind the scenes personality. Because like when they're just hanging out, we just see them talking and having conversations. They're not necessarily always drunk with some exceptions, of course. Oh, Christian, I'm just going to respond to Kayla and Jamie and then you can totally go. Uh, but I, what I was kind of thinking of with social media or this instance that I had in my head was I was watching an interview with a celebrity and she was talking about she was formerly well, no, she was a recovering addict at the time, and she was reading her tweets on social media about how she was acting on television, how this performance was, and she had a relapse. And I thought that if that, that quote reminded me of that because she was making herself so accessible and she was like reading what people thought about her and which sort of goes on to the whole uh what were we talking about with tara before that she was in essence like revealing herself revealing a part of herself that she didn't normally reveal and that through and i don't mean that through social media i mean that through her art but then through social media she was getting critiqued on this whole other level and was able to see what people were saying about her you know instantly and i think she was overcome by a barrage of insults christine uh, yeah, I was going to say that, like, I think the social media is sort of a two way street, right? So, you know, it gives fans like kind of in their minds, a direct access to their celebrities or their pop stars, their favorites. And it, in a way it does, because I mean, like, even though you're one of a million tweets that these celebrities or pop stars or gods are going to see, overall, it makes a collective voice. But on the same on the on the same token, like social media is curated, right? So like we provide glimpses of our lives that we want other people to see that's going to make us look good, that's going to project that image of us that we want the rest of the world to know, um, which is what I think Jamie was talking about. Um, So in that way, I think you're always on like as a performer. And I think that in the rare instances where pop stars, celebrities, gods, like do sort of reveal the sort of raw, unfiltered, unperformance aspect of themselves, that's when like those are like the the tweets that blow up you know those are the ones that people really pay attention to but they usually are like associated with some sort of meltdown so it's like that that that, like becoming vulnerable on social media i think is like that final steps that that a celebrity takes before they're like the end of their career you know other than that they're always curating an image of themselves and i think but i do think it is you know i think pop stars can use social media to get a like a really honest view on how the rest of the world sees them so you know and and it kind of depends on which way you're looking at it from like the james franco selfies yeah or was it james james you're talking wait no he released a book on selfies i think that was kim kardashian wasn't it oh i'm not sure but i just know james that was kim kardashian one of the coffee table book yeah yeah it was her selfies they're pretty much the same yeah a marco so i i had two points the first was just to kind of go off what Christine was saying, that I agree that there is a two-way street. There's a, a YouTube channel that I follow called The Game Grumps, and they're a pair of comedians, and they always mention the fact that they don't they don't read the comments because sometimes people are just assholes, and they just try to get irk you and get at you. And when they're on their social media accounts, that's where they prefer you to like to tweet at them or something because it's just easier to, to reply in that way. But some people don't realize that, again, they're not always on. And so sometimes they'll, they'll make a joke. Uh, the people tweeting at, at, at these um, these comedians, they'll make a joke or they'll say something. And in one of their videos, they mentioned that, you know, 
they're people, they're people too, and they have their lives. And sometimes people just don't understand that, that they're not always on. And I also follow another YouTube channel called Rooster Teeth. And Rooster Teeth, um, the CEO, one of the one of the co-founders, Bernie Burns, mentions that in this day and age, we're lucky to have comments because aside from all the garbage that people put up, they also might be giving you insight as to what they want and what the people themselves what they're craving. So it just it, it depends. It depends what what people look at at the comments you know you could see something maybe you'll see something negative and you'll only focus on the negative or you see something positive and you might uh, only focus on the positive so it, it depends person to person and i guess in this case it was channel the channel and the second point was off of what jake said where there might be different levels of social media so someone who is super famous might have their social media account controlled uh like i think uh jamie said or christine that they, they it's not it's filtered and that's usually the bigger people because they have to appeal to a wider audience so they the things they say or the things they do have to be maybe a little more topical versus someone who's not as big someone who doesn't have as big a name brand they can be a little more liberal about the things they say because they don't have as large a following and a lot of the people that do actually connect with them are people who might be like them they share the same interests which is why they're they follow those social media people i mean those people who are on social media um so for me it i would say that it depends the size the fame that the person has as well as what the people are saying towards those people what other youtube channels do you follow (laughs) (laughs) you know the usual stuff so Hazel is accused of pretending by Cassandra in the beginning of the series. In several scenes, the gods seem to accuse themselves of being imposters and not real. How much of fame and narratives about famous people are simply made up by us as a society? I think, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> for me, the answer is all. I, I have no faith in the honesty or integrity of stories about fame or famous people. I think once people cross over into fame, they no longer control their own stories, and we no longer have an ability to connect with them as individuals, even in an era of social media. I I agree. I think that famous famous people are products of marketing. Woo! (laughs) Maybe maybe that's too strong. No, this shit is on fire. Keep going. All right. I think you've had enough. No, I haven't had enough. That was no seriously. That was honestly that was really good. I I was excited because I could very much could agree with you. Great. I wish you would continue and tell us more. I mean, the point about famous people being products of marketing. I that that's why it's. I don't know. For for comic creators, I sometimes expect them also to be like famous people, but they're not really. Most of them. I mean, the creators of this comic, they're not famous. So you can read their blog, and it seems honest. You can. They these guys write a lot about their process and their thinking. They answer fan questions all the time, so it's kind of a middle ground where they have fans, but they still seem like people. There's a different level to it. There's like you know they yeah. don't have they don't have to reach as wide an audience because the people that they're definitely famous for comics, people, right? Exactly. But right. at the same time, they're not Alan Moore. They're not Grant Morrison. Mm-hmm. I think about Kelly Sue DeConnick, mm-hmm. and I follow her on Instagram. Mm-hmm. She posts pictures of her children frequently, mm-hmm. quite often, but it's not a big deal. 
It's never in media. It's never on the news. No one ever talks about it. It's just her Instagram and she just has fun and she's just another person. It's it's whatever. A line from the comic is gods speak to the culture they come from as well as a gateway to what's next. Agree or disagree and why? I agree because I think if you look at the pantheon of Greek gods that it says a lot about their culture, especially if you look at Medusa. Medusa was a very young lady who was originally sexually assaulted and her parents sort of disowned her. They were embarrassed by it and then she was turned into Medusa. And I think it kind of shows you what some of the the values and social mores of, of ancient Greece are and were. Yeah, I agree. I was raised Catholic and so a lot of my traditions come from my uh my spanish heritage the foods that i eat on certain holidays the dances that we do for certain uh for certain events things we do on weddings things we do on baptisms it varies versus things that like i've gone to these events that are that stem from the same religion here in the u.s so they've been different and because we're culturally different here in in the united states versus my parents uh, in ecuador is that where the question was going? Like, is that what you wanted? What, what do, you- do you want? <laughs> I beat you, Jake. I can feel it coming. My head exploded. <laughs> is this what you want? That's from Ice, Ice Storm. If you guys, anyone read that, saw that movie or read that book. The part that confuses me a little bit is the second part. What Love exactly does it mean that gods are a gateway to or speak to a gateway to what's next? Well, I think it's like, do gods like represent what's to come for? Like, you know, like I kind of interpreted the question as being like, oh, the gods, like the pantheon as they exist right now, like, do they embody sort of what our culture has become and where it's going? So like, they're all really like social media obsessed and they're all really into like clothing and style and stuff like that. And does that speak to like the vanity of our like 21st century Western culture? And I would say yes. Yeah, I would agree with that. I I do think these gods are an exception because most, you know, in most cases, mythologies are not developing in real time. People don't interact directly with gods. So their stories that have been passed down through the generations. Yeah, what's interesting to me is how all the gods seem to be located in like London or Britain. Like do like I guess because an Anarchy? Ananke. Ananke. Because Ananke is located in Britain, does she just like make the gods? Does she just like choose who the gods will be reincarnated into? Or like do does she have to find them? Because it seems like a hell of a coincidence that they all just ended up in the uk yeah that part's sort of confusing i wish they addressed it more directly i mean the creators have talked about the value of uh, keeping things local for laura as a character and i think that makes sense she becomes a more relatable character if, if it's not like a, a global story but i do wish they had even one page explaining why all of this is taking place in such a small area yeah but- i mean i guess because, like, it just seems because, like, the last reincarnation of the Pantheon in the 1920s and 30s, that was in New York, wasn't it? If I remember correctly. Or was was it not? I thought it was in New York. But maybe it has Let's to do, like, check. all the gods get reincarnated at the same place so they can be together. I have no idea. Well, and it seems like... They didn't uh, really explain that very well. It seems like Bale can uh, just you know, jump wherever he wants through the, through the lightning or whatever. So, it, it like, for me, it kind of made sense that he could just be wherever the rest of the pantheon is right but i think he still originated in the uk like he was there already but you know it's not like he was 
from the United States and then just suddenly relocated to the UK, I think. Yeah. So I just think it's like the Pantheon, as the generation exists right now, they are speaking to the culture that's about to come, the sort of like self-obsessed vanity and like obsession with, you know, basically being in everybody's business and being interconnected 24-7. But I do think it's a a little limited by the fact that because all the gods are sort of like British or because they're all located in the UK, like it is it's only representing what's to come for a certain group of people. Like, I don't think it it speaks to like people, you know, growing up in China, for example. Yeah. We had commented on not really knowing about Minerva, if she was a boy or if she was a girl, what they commented her on, how she actually looks. So one of the themes in the story is maybe beyond gender or meta gender. Uh, does it feel like it's kind of a happy consequence of the story or of the creative team needing to tell it that way? I think that a cool aspect of the story is that it seems to kind of imply without ever saying it that the gender doesn't, it is meta gender. Like it applies the sense that like the genders don't really matter and like they're not. Like I feel like, and I feel like also there could be some implication, debatably, that oh, it's the first time I ever thought of this. Hear, hear me out. But kind of like when the in that scene where she talks to Cassandra, and she's like, "I knew," and like, "I'm sorry for like calling you on that." It was just like I was going for the low blows. I feel like there's also like an implication in the moment that like they understand that like this is a struggle, like gender is like a mortal struggle, but for them it's not like that. Like it's not like they're in amongst themselves concerned with the performance of gender, the aspect of gender are like discussing what they mean. I mean, they still have pronouns, so I can't say that they're completely obscenely above it, but it does seem to be like there's not a conversation amongst them about it, which I think is interesting. Uh, Christine. I think the sort of the moral of the story that, not the moral of the story, but what they're getting at is sort of that identity is separate from, I don't know if that's right though, like if identity is kind of separate from gender or that like your identity transcends your gender, but I also don't, don't feel like that's right either. So, man, just, just forget I said that. <laughs> this feels like it's at three o'clock in the morning. All right. It's okay. I was just going to mention, Kale has to say something smart, but I'm going to say something, a really quick one sentence thing about um, there being many genderless gods or meta gender gods in several different pantheons. Uh, Loki is one of them, actually, believe it or not, has been known to change gender. And then there are several religions that sort of think of God as a, a genderless being. Kale? I was just going to say that uh, extends really well also to uh, Baal and Inanna. And, you know, after uh, Inanna dies and even before, there's a, you know, the big uh, the big scandal between them was that uh, Baal was like in love with Inanna when typically it's, you know, he's, I guess, I guess it's assumed he is, you know, heterosexual before that. So I think, you know, I think that even the, the gender question even extends to, the relationships you know i think yeah to them it seems like it just doesn't matter love is love yeah yeah i think that like gender and sexuality are sort of irrespective of each other but it seems that all of the gods have a very fluid idea of sexuality they sort of just they're like i feel like they're pansexual like they just love who they love and gender isn't an issue but then i don't know if that means that they personally don't ascribe to genders because I can see how gender would be a huge part of your identity. So I'm, I don't know, right. torn on that issue. Jake? Yeah, there's something in there, but uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to say it clearly. I will say that um, I thought 
the gender fluidity applied only to some of them some of them are obviously supposed to be men or women yeah but there is one scene where i think it was uh no i'm not remembering which god one of them says something like she's boring because she's straight ama ama terasu oh ama terasu yeah yeah at the uh, in the uh, uh dionysus party mhm the other part of it to me is there is sort of an idea that uh, love is love you are interested in whomever regardless of gender and that kind of thing but does that emerge from the sort of hedonism that comes from being a god or like a pop star because to me it seemed like woden was like that only because he was or he was doing that only because he was a god and had the ability to i mean it kind of goes back yeah. to like there are all these references to like sex parties and that kind of stuff and so there's a fluidity in that but it seems to me that it's also connected to just an interest in pleasure so i don't know to me that's that could undermine this comic's comment on like the fluidity of love i think it's like the fluidity of gender and the the i think the gender fluidness and like the sex the fluidity of sexuality and like hedonism i think it's all specific on the god and because for me, it seems like Walden is pretty straight, like he's pretty heterosexual, but he's also like super into that sort of hedonistic lifestyle because he can versus like Dionysus seems more like pansexual, like Dionysus and Nana seem like pansexual and like gender fluid. So I think it really just depends on the god and, and who they were as a person before they became a god. Okay, so with all of this kind of beyond gender, metagender idea and just identity in general, how is identity such a major theme in the story and how is it used? How, do the, how does the creative team use it? I think there's something interesting at least going on with the identity in the book. Whenever people get called to or they, they're like it's revealed that they're a god. Like I think there's an interesting aspect where like whenever they're changed, I think that a lot of the characters kind of go through this thing where they're like, well, well, so I'm different now. And they're like, who am I now? And then Anyanki or however we have decided to pronounce it, would kind of be like, well, I mean, there are tendencies, but like some of them have more openings, others don't. And so I think there's an interesting aspect there, at least, where it's kind of like whatever role, like it's very traditional type idea of gender or at least of identity. And this is like whatever identity you've been given, you're probably going to tend to do this. So she'd be like, Lucifer tended to kind of go off the rails, whereas other ones are less likely to go off the rails. Some are kind of wild cards. So I think it's interesting how like it's never quite clear how much of their personality before is connected to their personality now. And I think that could be a good metaphor for the way that the identity that you're given or or in your life, like what you presented at, what you're given or what your options are at least like kind of frames the way that you feel about yourself as what other people feel about you. Because I think that there is a great question there always like how much is the God's personality and how much is it their personality? And are those two things the same? I feel like it's like kind of a question that I always had I with a lot of different people. Yeah, I kind of felt the same way that when they became the God, it was almost like I personally was struggling with them losing their mortal self more than what they were. Like all of a sudden they had all of these god memories they remembered the past and they were totally cool with it and didn't talk about their past until like kind of later down the road but i was like wait well but you were a 14 year old what happened i don't understand what about your parents 
Yeah, it was weird because they never like clarify they never sort of clarify the lore and like when they're reincarnated as gods, do they like is it like the god personality has like inhabited their old personality or their old like identity, or is it that, you know, who they were always the god and you just like awoken that part of their person that, that part of their identity. Yeah, exactly. And like how much of their identity is the god part and how much is it their old part? Is it all the god or is it all the person or is the god and the person they were before they were god even the same person or are they different people? So that yeah. part I'm really confused about. Yeah, right. Can I, on the on the previous question, mm-hmm. I think the, the question reframed things a little bit for me, mm-hmm. suggesting that it was like beyond gender and that kind of thing. Uh, when I was reading the first time, I thought it had to do more with like diverse representation of people who identify differently and i think uh that's important in comics because it, it doesn't happen enough and across media you know representation of all of the kinds of people who actually exist because that's that's the most interesting art for me but i do think there is a fine line between representation and pandering so when i was reading the first time i kind of felt like they were capitalizing on a certain moment where discussions of sexuality and that sort of thing are becoming more common, more popular. They're taking up more of, uh, I would say, the public attention. And I didn't know if it was really saying very much that was interesting about it. I think suggesting that it's beyond gender, I mean, that makes it more of an interesting story to me. But I also think that that story has been told before. There are books where the characters just don't have genders that are identified. So I don't know. I don't. I don't think that's going into a broader conversation just a potential criticism yeah i kind of think that's why it's not specifically addressed probably because it has been done before like the i don't feel like this story would have much to add in that department i think that's i think that's why it's just not that it's glossed over but it it's very much just kind of you know we're just supposed to accept that this is how it goes you know i think that i don't think it was a major theme in the story although i think it was obviously brought up a few times uh without subtly brought up but i do kind of like how they dealt with diversity and this sort of like above gender thing i don't know if that's something i'm reading into it though from whatever i've studied in the past or something you know but that was sort of what i got from it i mean you guys were telling me minerva was a girl i saw her as like a little boy being referred to as a girl because she's minerva and i also thought that some of the gods that were inhabiting these people were the opposite gender of the person who they were inhabiting. So that's kind of where, it, where that kind of came for me. Yeah, no, I thought that was an interesting observation, especially like there are certain characters, Dionysus um, and Anna, where clearly there's uh, some kind of commentary on that. So I, I thought the way that you framed it was interesting. Thank you. It was Emily who framed it. I it thought, the, me I thought the way it. that Emily framed it was interesting. Emily, would you like to frame the next question? Emily frames things nice. She's a framer. I my best. So moving away from identity a little bit, but talking about lies within the story, a lot of the characters lie from Lucy to Anaka. Ananke. Ananke. Ananke to Laura. And one of the lies we hear a few times is, I love you. All will be okay. But what purpose do you think does this have to serving to the story? I think that... It is a lie that we all want to hear from a sort of like mother goddess, from a sort of mother figure. It brings us back to being a child. I love you. Everything will be fine. Life is going to be beautiful. You're going to be okay. We're going to always be together. But it's a sort of lie that we, and this is sort of dismal now that I'm saying it out loud, but I think it's a sort of lie that we all want to hear 
as people and as children and the purpose that it served for me was that um, I'm not really sure actually what the purpose of surgery was, although I just more that I just noticed it. But I think that if it did serve a purpose, it would it, it served to sort of establish like the mother child connection that Ananki had with her children gods. Yeah. Jamie, yeah, uh, I was just gonna say that I feel like there was some aspect to to the way that she would say it, especially Anaki would say it, where she would kind of say it in the sense of like a destiny or. In the sense of like, because I mean, she's seen so many years. So in the sense that like, it's kind of like the cycle of death, the cycle of them. Like, it'll all be fine. It'll all balance out. But I think that there was some interesting stuff going on there with kind of the way that the other gods um, would kind of react to that. And they would kind of be like, they'd be like, well, like, screw that. Like They were like, so what? It'll be good then. Like, I'm living now. So I think that there was kind of an interesting destiny type aspect to it that I always liked. Because there was some sort of thing where you had to either choose the the ways of the world, like the cycle of the world or accept at least that idea or choose to kind of like live in the moment and change it. Like, I mean, that was kind of like the idea of the problem with Lucifer and kind of like they're revealing their godness. Like, I think that I think it's a thread that gets dropped a little bit later, but there still is kind of that idea that like I'm just assuming when they reveal it too, there'll be some sort of like Anyaki's like there's like this big destiny plan that we all have to follow. And so I think it's kind of interesting, especially in terms of individuality kind of like the idea that either you should accept the way things have always been done is terms of like the reincarnation of the gods and the way the world works or like change it and be more of an individual. Yes, Marco. Oh, I think uh, Jake first, actually. Jake first. Up to you. It's up to you. Uh, I just had a small point. Well, then in that case. A thin point. <laughs> <laughs> then is, is she saying it for them as she kills them or as they die or is she, or is she saying it? for her to reassure herself that things will balance out because that that's a little bit of both i think it's a metaphor (laughs) (laughs) oh shit but really did anyone want to add to that both in what way kale i mean i i think she's very much using it to control the situation and to remind the pantheon that she knows better like she only correct me if i'm wrong but she really only says it when she's manipulating or killing them. So is she doing it because she feels guilty? No, she's doing it to remind them that she's the one in charge. Like a record company would do. Like she, yeah, like she care, like she is manipulating them into thinking, like Tara says, you know, Ananke's the only one that knows, and Ananke's the only one that cares, and then Ananke kills her. Admittedly, you know, by Tara's wish, but, you know, in terms of like Lucy. Okay. Sorry, Marco has the facial expressions if he's just seen a vagina for the first time <laughs> and doesn't know where the inside parts are. But continue, Cal. I was just for our audience to know that. I think yeah, I think that's that's it. That's a that's a Speaking of inside parts, uh, just kidding. I wanted to add a, a another level to it. Um Kieran Gillen, like I said earlier, he's uh, very open in discussing his work, his process, the thinking behind his writing. His inside parts. <laughs> Please no. He said in an interview that the two year thing well, the idea for the comic actually it came about when his father was diagnosed with a terminal illness. So the two year thing a lot of people interpret it like the 15 minutes of fame, and I, I think that's probably appropriate, but there's this other level where the comic is also more generally dealing with mortality. And so that comes up, and I think it probably serves a narrative function 
and uh, Ananke use, says that at certain times, and that adds to the character, it adds to the story and that kind of thing. But I also think it's the writer, I think he brings that up just suggesting the questions, sort of like how Marion and what is Baphomet's name before he becomes a god? I'm not sure. sure. Cameron? When they're discussing in in their story, I think it was in the third trade, Oh yeah, yeah. And his family dies and he says, Are you are you gonna tell me it's all okay or something like that? And she says no. I think Well she says she'll never lie to him or something. Right, right. Also a lie. So that's <laughs> true. So that's Karen Gillen, I think, asking or posing the question, will it all be okay? Or maybe just observing that that's something that people think about uh when considering their own mortality. That's really interesting, actually. I like it. Oh thank you. Are we ready to move on now? I think so. Yeah. We want to talk about a little art, maybe. Oh, what about Valhalla? Yes. Yes. Valhalla? Valhalla. What does Valhalla represent? Is that the place that they all go and it has like all the little thrones? Yeah, it's the little Tron world. Oh, it's... Okay. Wait, didn't Woden make it? Right, that's... Woden made it, right? Yeah, he made it to have a place so they can all meet. Um, And have orgies. She asked for it, right? Yeah, she it's asked. like their clubhouse. Yeah, it's their clubhouse. But I think, uh, I think maybe Woden made it since he's the one doing the things behind, like behind the scenes. Maybe he just did it so like he can gather information, he can uh, keep tabs on people, uh, that kind of thing. I just, that's no, it's the palace of deception. Yeah, oh, I like that. I always assumed Valhalla was like. Well, I mean, I didn't even assume it ever meant anything. But like in light of that whole speech that he gives about like the patriarchy. Cassandra at one point. I feel like Valhalla is the patriarchy. Like it's like the like it's like the structure that's imposed upon them that's like watching them and like murdering them and kind of confining them to where they're supposed to be. Because if they step out of line, they all meet there and Anarchy is the main seat. I mean it's very traditional, I will say that. But wouldn't that be the pantheon then? Like the pantheon would be the patriarchy because it's like right. it's the system which keeps them in it. Well, also, actually, wait, that connects back, weirdly enough, to that thing we're talking about the identities. We're like, are these people the gods or are they the people? It's kind of like the identities are all held in the pantheon and these people have to behave in a certain way. Um, and if they're stepping out, it's not OK. OK, moving on. No, uh, I think it's important <laughs> to talk about what Valhalla represents in real life in Norse mythology and the, I guess, dissonance that exists between what the creative team is saying about what it repre- what the metaphor is in the Wicked and Divine comic. Obviously, I, I, the very little I know about Valhalla, I think it's where, like, if you get killed in battle, it's where you go. Yeah, it's like it's, a heaven. Yeah, it's like the highest point you can be in, like, the... the yeah, it's like the, top the Hall of, of Warriors. Yeah. Right, like the most heavenly yeah. part of heaven. Isn't it, isn't it like the top mm-hmm. of Yggdrasil, the tree? Something like that, yeah. No, Yggdrasil is like the tree that connects all the universes or galaxies. Right, but isn't Valhalla like somewhere up like top or something like that? Oh, yeah. It's like a cloud or something above it. Yeah. I don't know. Something like that. Valhalla. The symbolism, I think, will become hopefully clearer in the next few issues as it becomes more like a battle between Valhalla and uh, the gods who stay there and the underworld. So Ragnarok. Thank you, Shake. Yeah. Yes. Well, isn't Ragnarok the big war? Yeah, that's what it, that's basically what it is, isn't it? Like the 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 warriors versus the the different gods they they end up fighting. Isn't Ragnarok where like all the gods gods end up dying and having to be reincarnated? No, that's a recurrence. The, oh. the, the the Ragnarok at least. Oh my god, we sound so. F- 
fucking stupid right now. Oh. Do you want to know what the internet says Ragnarok is? Because I think Christine's right. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, it says in Norse mythology, Ragnarok is a is like a series of events and a great battle that results in the death of major figures in like Norse mythology. And then it says afterward, the world will resurface anew and fertile, and the surviving returning gods will meet. Cool. Yeah, and I think in the comics, Ragnarok is like a concert, isn't it? Like their yeah. big yeah. concert. Yeah, it's like a yeah, like a benefit. It starts out as a panel, and then Woden makes it yeah. into Coachella like or something. Oh my God, <laughs> yeah, so talented. I think that like we can't confuse like the actual mythology that this comic is drawing from versus like the in-story mythology because then I would get really confusing. It is confusing. Illusions on illusions on illusions. It's a metaphor. Yeah, and I'm also not like super versed in like Norse and Greek gods and the like. So I just realized the word meta is a metaphor. There's too many metaphors. I'm not. I was like not. I'm not smart enough to keep up with all this. It's a it's a metaphor. So art. Yeah. Next segment. Okay. Please, Emily, lead us into it. I'm so excited to talk about the art. The art. It was beautiful. One of the. The art was awesome. Best part of the comic, the end. One of the first things that struck me was the use of black. There were so many pages that were just full black with only text. Uh, As a method of storytelling, how successful was the design of these pages? Very successful. Next. Next question. (laughs) Pretty successful. (laughs) It was a thin success. It was I. It was I. (laughs) That success was thick as fuck. <laughs> I mean, I thought, uh, I, th- I thought those that kind of thing works, especially in contrast to the vibrant colors of the rest of the book. Thank you, Jake. Beautiful. So I thought it was interesting that... Oh, wait, Jamie has something to say. Yes, Jamie. Uh, I would also say the black pages worked really well against the text, and it like helped to like make it feel like it was an empty moment. Because it was always like somebody was dying, usually like Laura. And it would just be blank. And I feel like the way that the text worked on the black page was the thing that really like put the knife in my heart. Well, yeah. I also thought in the absence of imagery, text becomes the imagery. Exactly. The juxtaposition between the black and the white versus the vibrant colors of the rest of the text really helped to hone in and emphasize what the words are conveying in those moments. Exactly. You sound so smart right now. Uh, yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty. It's no, I, I really like the the colors, the vibrancy, the way that they used um, Matt Wilson, the colorist, used uh, like like neon colors, like party colors, especially during scenes in the second trade. That one scene where with um, uh, they're at the party, uh, Dionysus party. Yes, yes, Dionysus party. They're they're there. They're all having a good time, and the the panels. I that was my favorite part. One of my favorite parts in the book is just the the way the panels were laid out with the numbers, the the different colors, the way that they would contrast each other, and it just made it seem like they were at a party. It made you seem like you were there with them, just enjoying the night, because that's what that's what they were trying to portray, just a fun, crazy night. So in contrast to the psychedelic colors, sometimes Laura and the other fans, they were depicted in grays, uh, sometimes with no faces, no distinguishable features. So obviously this was a visual comment on fandom. What do you think about that? How did that play up to, with the story? I don't necessarily think it It was... F- I mean, there was probably some... Okay, I do think it had to do with the fandom. I think it was just mostly just to represent all the noise. You know, because we... In the moment when 
Laura is doing the conventions, we can see uh, Cassandra coming up to her. But yeah, she's like enveloped in all that gray and we can only just make her out. So yeah, she, you know, um, since we're seeing it from Laura's point of view, she's very much just part of the noise. Yes, Marco. In terms of panels, again, uh, I like the way that they laid out like certain scenes, like like the stairs, they would become part of the the page itself. You would read it going downward and stuff. That was really cool. The, they mm-hmm. actually had a, a number of scenes like that where I think in the train too, when, he was, when uh, Laura was going to visit the Morgan, uh, again, she's descending down. Actually, it's, I think it's every time that she goes to visit the Morgan, it's just they take advantage of the fact that she has to go down into the depths and they really portray that both for the story and just on the page. It just looks really well. Yeah, that's it works really well. That's one thing that uh, McKelvey really excels at is uh, just crazy panel layouts. The um, Laura going down into the train uh, is is a great one. The uh, Dionysus party is another one. Another one I was thinking of specifically was um, uh, the like the mini layout of Laura's room, how it shows just all of her stuff that belongs to the fandom. There was a, a, a really great moment in Young Avengers where it shows the actions of a certain character as he's fighting like a big group of aliens all in one really big room. And it shows him, you know, it's, it's, it's like a mini map of just the character going through and doing these certain things. And there are certain captions that go with those actions and thoughts. And, you know, sometimes it'll highlight a certain action. Uh, yeah, McKelvey is a dynamite panel artist jamie did you have a dynamite panelist am i a dynamite panelist (laughs) oh no sorry i was just repeating what kale said don't (laughs) i was like i'm not i'm really not nowhere near as good jamie did you have anything to add i think on like art in general or just like the blank pages oh just on the art uh yes then i do i think that my favorite aspect of the art is that the way that it helps identify them individually? Because I will say that, like, they do look very similar, but like their defining features with their makeup or their hair, I always think is really fun. It reminds me of Gem and the Holograms, but like in a, in a Gem and the Holograms is like my favorite comic, so like in a great way. Um, but I think it's wait, like really fun wait. the way that people like, the art, art is like very Wicked visual, her colorful, of fun, and Can so I don't see a reason why you on? shouldn't just like feel free to go balls to the wall and so i think that that's like one of my favorite things and it i just adds lots of personality in cool ways yes Kristen. uh yeah i think the the colors sort of reflect <laughs> just the vibrancy of the personalities in this comic you know everybody in this comic like despite whether you like them or not they have a really vibrant personality you know like if you were asked to describe any of them you you wouldn't just say like nice you know what i'm saying like they all have really vibrant colorful personalities and i think that's reflected in the art especially by how vivid they are because like pop stars are larger than life right so the colors and the art should reflect the sort of the magnitude and the scale of the story so if we could talk a little bit about what uh, Kale touched on, the fact of Kelvy. McKelvey. McKelvey. On McKelvey's use of kind of maps, sort of, I guess that would be. Also the use of social media within the art itself mm-hmm. as well. How did you react to these pages and all of the different ways that he was using this art? And then also the different artists that came on for volume three as well. One thing I think it would be really cool to point out is... Um, the scene uh the scenes in woden's issue in the back 
in like the commentary, he mentions that he uh, laid over scenes from from the other issues. So like, uh, there's one issue. Let's see. Yeah, I think they referred to it as a remix. Issue. Yeah, remix. yeah, specifically so that you could see it sort of the way Woden sees it, kind of through the helmet and kind of through like digital interference and stuff. It's very digital, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of pixelated. Yeah. And like he, that that page says that he took, uh, he and uh, Gillen took all of like the um, the headshots of certain characters, all like all of their appearances. And like listed them out specifically so that they could get the uh, the the art just right and make it, you know, look very seamless. Yeah, and and so like initially when I read through the Woden issue, it wasn't that big a deal to me. Right. Until I saw that. Um, yeah. Until I read that, and I looked back and I realized that so much more went into that. It really actually is incredible the amount of work that went into the panel design. Yeah. Yeah. Not just that one issue, but even back at the beginning, reading the first trade mm-hmm. and looking at the panel work, going, "This is yeah, very like, intricate." Actually, in the in the first, like it, the way he does it is like it's so it's both cinematic, but it also uses time in like the perfect comic book way. Uh, like the 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 perfect instance of that is when uh, in the in the first issue when the uh, the gunmen are are about to lay into uh, Lucy and she's, you know, going to return fire or whatever. She's standing in the window and then they they open fire and she, the bottom half of the page are, you know, it would be like c- cinematic close-ups of her hands and then the gunman's faces and then her snapping hands. You know, it's that it's that very moment-by-moment moment shot that's just it, it. The panels are small and the gutter is big specifically so that this moment feels... Expansive almost. Yes. I think McKelvey's use of space and like paneling is is a highlight as Kale mentioned before and I think that the way that he uses space to show motion is really well done. Like again the scene where they're descending into the morg- the Morgan's like tunnel or subway is was one of the highlights. Um, also that page with the social media where they show like the tweets that they come in and then suddenly it becomes like a full page spread and it's just like a bazillion tweets was really cool. And I spent myself, I spent time like actually zooming in and trying to read all the tweets and then I was like, no, Christine, don't do that. <laughs> yes, Jamie. Yes, Jamie. I just had a thing that I thought about earlier when we talked about the art and then we were going to push it to the end. But I want to say that I really liked that they chose for the way that like a lot of them would manifest their powers would be like to do a snap. Because I think that like works really excellent. It's like the one thing that you can really do where you have one panel where it's happening and the next panel it's literally happened. Like I think it was really effective, especially in, wow, it feels like we've been doing this podcast for months. I'm like, remember like a long time ago we were talking about how Lucifer died? (laughs) But I think in that panel especially it worked extremely well. And it also worked extremely well and the panel with Laura, where it's just like that snap and the moment's over. And I, and I love that choice in the art because I think it translates well between the panels and it really like hits you right in the gut. Yes, Jake? Uh, I was talking to an artist recently for a, a post on Comicsverse, and he was talking about how fundamentally a comic should be easy to read. And McKelvey's art makes it so easy to to get through this. I mean, the writing is snappy. I think the pages are well constructed. The rendering is beautiful as are the colors to me what this comic has going for it more than anything else is just that it's extremely cool like all around the characters are cool the colors are extremely cool and this is even in a time where you could argue that 
lots of comics are overcolored. Like this comic is totally saturated, but it does it, I think, in a unique way. Yes, Kale. I was just going to say, I would uh, since since we've been talking about it, I, I would also really like to point out uh, the fantastic colors by uh, Matt Wilson, just in general. Like, let's acknowledge him because they're incredible. Yes, well, Christine. Let's do it some more. Oh yeah, I was going to say. The art is definitely, I mean, the colors are definitely a highlight for me. I also think the character designs, going off what Jake said, the character designs are like super dope. I want to model myself after Lucifer and that power suit, the white power suit she wears. Like, I want that to be my graduation outfit. Yeah, me too. Unfortunately, I haven't found it yet, but it's going to happen. So going with art. Dope ass character designs. (laughs) Can we talk quick about the full third trade each issue was done by a different artist. Was that jarring for anyone? Yes, yeah, Jake. Yeah, when I started reading that, uh, the trade, I think most of us read it in trade. But uh, when I started reading that trade, I, w- I was kind of disappointed. And there was a change. At the beginning, I felt like McKelvey's art was sort of standard looking. But I just, as I got through the issues, I, I came to really, really enjoy his artistic style. And I was also concerned about the change in the use of uh, of colors. Wilson's colors, we've said, are amazing throughout. And that third trade features both different artists and different colorists. And at first, I thought it was pretty jarring. But the way that that works with the individual characters' stories, ultimately pretty effective. I also, you know, it helped that I enjoyed all of the artists who worked on those issues i don't know if you saw this in the in gillen's blog or not jake but like that's why they called it commercial suicide was like they knew that that's like one of the number one things that comic fans hate is when a new artist takes over it yeah it's very jarring and it 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 can take you out of it and that's why so that's why they called it commercial suicide because they weren't sure it was going to work at all yeah, I didn't. I didn't see that, but I actually had that thought. I was like, "Why would they do this? They have some, something that's going so well." Yeah, but at the time, it was like he was just like overworked, and yeah, McKelvey just needed a holiday or whatever. So, I really appreciate that they called it commercial suicide. Now, mm-hmm. I like it even more. Anyone else? Okay, so I think that's going to wrap it up for another episode of Comics Verse. <laughs> Hold on, let me Bye. We're done. Bye. <laughs> What has he written? So that does it for another episode of the Comics First podcast. This was all about images wicked and divine written by Kirian Gillen. Thank you again for listening. I hope you check us out on comicsfirst.com. We have tons of podcasts and videos and interviews all about all kinds of comics. So please check us out. I want to thank the panel for being here as well. Good night, everyone. Oh, wait, Jake, will you sing us a song? Because Kathy, remember Jamie Kathy used to give us these send offs and they were very Mm -hmm. musical. And I feel like you're like you're asking me to sign off or make a pun, sing or make a pun, sing off this podcast, Jake. A metaphor, maybe. Oh, brother! Um, Isn't there a song about metaphors? Singing about a metaphor. That people come into our lives for a reason, bringing something we have. I don't think that's the line, but it's from Wicked. Is it? Oh my God, Wicked! Like Wicked and the Divine. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing. Thank you, Emily, for closing us out. You're welcome.